Well, here we are. <laughs> uh, both of our fans will be excited to know that we're going to continue and we're going to complete part two of our previous part one on the Lord of the Rings. So welcome back to Script v. Manuscript, the if podcast. If you're still here, yeah. thank you so much. If you've, if you've waited, if you've been waiting in line for this to release... Um, we're springing it unexpectedly, randomly. The wait is over. Yes. Um, it's been about six months since I think the last one was recorded. Or maybe it wasn't posted. I can't recall now. But we actually recorded this once before. And uh, uh, because of a sound quality issue, we just couldn't release it. It was, it was inaudible, mostly. So anyway, we'll do our... We'll go ahead and do our regular introduction. Welcome to Script v. Manuscript, the podcast which which is about storytelling. And it is a comparison of books and movies and adaptations uh, from one to the other and back and forth. And uh, and other kinds of story that we just kind of whatever we feel like. Yeah. So I'm uh, one of your co-hosts, Terry, here with my other co-host. Joe, it's good to be back. Yes, it is. So let's get into our regular segments before we get into our meat unless you have something you want to start with no just uh you know it's gonna be back and thanks for everybody for hanging on but yeah. i'm excited to to get back into lord of the rings with you terry yeah for sure so what are you reading these days well i uh thanks to my local bookstore walls of books i have been doing some reading on rabbit husbandry uh, my wife and i re- recently um have purchased a property with a little bit of land on it and we're looking to do some homesteading uh do some farming do a little bit of uh, caring for some some small animals and uh doing some meat rabbits and so mm. i've been reading on uh rabbit care and so yeah. it's, it's been a, it's been a fun read okay yeah yeah so i've been i've been doing that and then in my i know our listeners are always super excited to hear what i'm teaching right now my students are uh right now reading through the song of roland uh, uh, and that will make a. I think we have a, some comments yeah, on that. That will make an yeah. appearance later. So I'll, yeah. so I'll stop right there. We'll okay. talk about that later. But what about you? What are you getting? What are you getting uh, into? Well, I actually just finished for like the seventh or eighth time, Heart of Darkness. There you go. It's just the time of the year that it's, <laughs> it's time for me to read it again. Sure. Um, I don't think it's a conscious thing, but around this time, towards the end of the third quarter. Well, this isn't really towards the end, but in the third quarter sure. of, of school. It's appropriate. Is when we read it when I was still a teacher. That is so of it just like I see it on the shelf and I'm like, I'm gonna read that again. And it, this has happened more than once now. So. Now correct me if I'm wrong, is this your favorite book? It is my favorite. That's yeah. what I thought. Um I mean it's hard to pick a favorite, but sure. Um often if if you were to ask me what my favorite book is, uh seven like, you know, once a day for seven days, probably four of the days I would say Heart, Heart of Darkness. Darkness. Yeah. That's, that's um, well and then the other three days would be random other things that i also enjoy lord of the rings would probably be one of them at least so so that's good um is there anything else that i've been reading interesting nothing really comes to mind i did actually recently finish reading the song of roland a couple of months ago now but like you know relatively recently perfect so that'll that'll be good for later chat about that if you want what have you been watching though so i have um been watching so my my wife and I. Do you watch Rings of Power? <laughs> no, stop! <laughs> oh gosh, I I my my kids make jokes. You know they they try to, you know when you're a teacher if you've if you've ever taught, um, you understand that 
you know, one of the things that, that kids like to try to do is they like to see, like, what can push your buttons. And mm-hmm. and really what they're trying to do is get you on a rabbit trail so you won't actually teach the lesson, yeah, sure. right? Like, let's just talk about this other thing that doesn't matter. And they think that we don't know that, but, of course, I know what they're doing. Sure. But the one that they can get me on pretty regularly is, like, Mr. Davis, what do you think about Amazon and Rings of Power? And uh, they, I think, I'm pretty sure I've convinced my children that, I, that like, I'm a domestic terrorist and that, like, yeah. I'm going to burn down Amazon warehouses <laughs> in protest. <laughs> like, this is how we handle our problems in 2023. <laughs> if you hate a thing, you burn it down. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I have not watched Rings of Power. Um, but... Uh, my wife and I were. Nobody else has either. Yeah, think, think, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they've. I, I, they don't, Is it running? Streaming, these streaming services never release their numbers because uh, why would you? You sure. know, you don't. The, the reason why you release your numbers is because you're trying to attract advertisers, and so streaming services have no incentive to do that. Right. Um, and so it's a, it's it's their incentive is to mystify everyone into thinking that it's popular. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So they have all these astroturfed social media campaigns and not as much now, but like they would buy Twitter bots that would all say the same thing about how great it is. Right. Um, and Amazon did this kind of thing and probably still does. Um, but the idea is like, oh, nobody knows what's good anymore. So if we just tell them, right. this is basically the concept of top 40 radio. They play a bunch of garbage, but they tell you it's popular. Right. So you think you're supposed to like it. Sure. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of what what they're going for. But uh, I've heard, although this is you, you really can never tell what the deal is. But I've heard that they've renewed it for a second season. Oh, good. Luck. But it's customary for them to release stuff like that prior to firing everyone right. involved because um, they know that everyone's screwed up, um, and uh, and so they'll they'll come out and say, "Oh, it's doing so well, we're renewing it," but then. They in, then it ended, it will end up not being renewed. They right. did the same thing with She Hulk. Mar, Mar, Disney did, oh, okay. um, and I think this. I think the She Hulk has been canceled for season two because wow. ain't nobody watching that either. Sure, That's um, hot and, garbage. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not a bit like I, I don't care about the descent of Marvel into mediocrity because I'm not a giant Marvel fan. Sure, I've enjoyed many of the movies. I think they were pretty fun, light light things. Had a good run. Uh, but as soon as Endgame was over, I was like, okay, yeah. the story is finished. Yeah. I don't care well about any of this other right. stuff anymore. Right. So, and uh, I just heard today from some, from a Disney employee that Disney is about to let go 7,000 employees. Wow. Um, and they're in the midst of interior, internal strife of sure. all kinds. They've got sure. like a big power struggle going on between the board of directors and some outside investors that are trying to do a hostile takeover and bob Iger, who's supposedly going to come back and save the company even though it's basically his fault that they're in the condition they're in now sure so it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out with disney but anyway i interrupted you what have you been watching (laughs) so my wife and i um we were sitting on the couch the other day just kind of in between shows and it came to our attention that the walking dead has been put onto a uh, streaming service. And um, I was a big fan of The Walking Dead for a while. Um, I fell off before it ended. Um, and my wife was also a big fan of The Walking Dead for a while. Um, but when The Walking Dead was really in its heyday, seasons you know three through f- six was, mm-hmm. was really when it was super popular. We didn't know each other. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, we weren't, we didn't even <laughs> know each other. And so anyway, we're sitting on the couch and you know, the, the little thumbnail comes up, Walking Dead, and I thought, ah, oh, man, I used to love this show. 
you know, I never finished it. Man, I used to love the show. And she was like, yeah, I used to love it. I used to watch it every Sunday. She's, and so she's like, I'm going to play the first episode. Do you remember that? Do you remember watching things <laughs> yeah. every Sunday? Listen, man, I bring it back. <laughs> I it, it was a big ordeal. Walking Dead was a big ordeal. We'd go to my buddy's house. We'd be in his man cave. We would be hanging out. Friends would come. Everybody had their assigned seat. Yeah, I, did this same, food. I did the same thing with Lost yeah. in college. Sure. Um, and... Yeah. Until that let you know. You just went every week to wherever <laughs> that you your friends that were interested, they sure. would all go together. Sure. You'd watch your show and have a have a fun time talking about the show. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I miss those days. You know, um, Disney does this a little bit with some of their stuff. They'll, they'll still release They'll drop it. them in chunks. Yeah. yeah. Um, we did think, that with Mandalorian season one. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's wise. I think yeah. it's, you know, go back, try to try to get people rehooked, But... Anyway, we're reminiscing into it. She said, well, you know, we're just sitting here doing nothing. Why don't you put that first episode on? Well, of course, you know, the first episode plays and then the second and now we're in season three. Uh, <laughs> you know, okay. we're just, I'm rewatching The Walking Dead. And I will, say, I will say, like, it's good, man. Like, those first couple of seasons were a really just interesting look into naturalistic philosophy and the veneer of civilization, the noble savage. Like, there's a ton of really good stuff in there that i've kind of forgotten about Mm -hmm. and it's fun watching the walking dead again because i've forgotten a lot especially the first three three seasons three or four seasons and uh, but i remember enough to be like i don't remember you which means you probably die soon but i have i don't remember how you die or Mm -hmm. you know and so it is and and it's a really weird experience of like i feel like i'm watching a new show but also Mm -hmm. i'm watching something that's familiar and that i love yeah and so anyway we've been really enjoying it um going back through and i hopefully i carry on to the end that if i remember correctly it kind of loses itself um yeah. deep into it yeah. so i don't know that we'll finish it but right now that's what i'm watching how about you what are you watching uh let's see i need a b-list i need a b-lister well i've watched several b-movies but that's that's not always easy to remember all the b-movies because a lot of them frankly are just not great um you know what I watched recently, hmm. somewhat recently, was Troll 2. Have oh. you ever seen Troll 2? I've never seen Troll 2. So Troll 2 is a famously bad movie. Okay. If, you, if you're if you interested in bad movies, like if you kind of have fun poking fun at movies, sure. Troll 2 is often one that's like, this might be the worst movie. Um, and uh, it's a little bit sad, though, because the director... Is in a, the director's in a te- it's kind of an interesting story. So the first movie, Troll, was not great either. It's just kind of a, I mean, it's kind of a B-horror schlock gotcha. thing. But it's about a troll who uh, I think is trying to take over a small town or something like that. I can't remember the first one. Fairly straightforward plot. Um, and Troll 2 doesn't have any trolls in it. It has uh, okay gremlins. What are they? What are they? goblins it has goblins in it okay um and uh so the the goblins uh own this town and it's about a family who the the, the premise is so absurd <laughs> it's about a family who's going on vacation and their the mode of vacation is that they're they're switching homes with a rural family like almost like a foreign exchange student kind of thing except for vacation okay maybe italians do that i don't know <laughs> But the director, like I said, is an Italian guy, and he was trying to make a big American movie, and he wrote the the script, okay. which in English is not his first language, <laughs> and um, and the actors who he hired 
um, all showed up to a casting call. This was filmed in Utah, somewhere near Salt Lake City, I think. And so they, these actors all showed up to a casting call, but none of them were actually actors. They were just people who lived in the area, and they wanted to be extras. They're like, oh, this will be fun. We'll, sure. we'll just hang around in the background of a movie. It'll be fun. Maybe we'll get, you know, five bucks a day per diem or something like that in a free <laughs> sandwich. And um, he didn't have any real actors, so he cast all these extras as his cast. Like oh, as his gosh, main that's people. amazing. <laughs> yeah. So nobody can act. And... Um, and the dialogue sounds like it was written by someone from a foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> and the actors were like, hey, man, we need to be able to, like, kind of ad lib or, or work around. Like, we'll get the idea across, <laughs> but your dialogue is bad. And he basically was like, no, <laughs> you can't. And so the dialogue is just bad. And it's delivered awkwardly. And um, and it's... Uh, it, it's just it's a real fun experience <laughs> if you if troll you, troll troll two. two okay yeah troll two and um there's been a few sequels to it but like if you get into b movies there's a there's this strange thing that sometimes happens where a movie will have multiple titles okay. it'll be released by different you know a company that the company that makes it'll go out of business they'll sell all their copyrights to pay off their debts or whatever. And this may happen a couple times. So sure. the movie will get re-released with a new cover and, you know, depending on who's um, who's doing the distribution, the cover could be like just really deceptive, you know, not not a genuine look at what the movie is, but they'll change the name. So sometimes you'll have a movie that has a certain name, but then it'll also have some alternate title. And there's several movies that are named Troll you know, three, four, five, six, seven, okay. and they all, but they have alternative names. But the, it's almost like, oh, it's a, it's a terrible B horror film. Just call it Troll, whatever number <laughs> um, is next. Um, so uh, that's one that I saw recently. It's <laughs> so great. I love yeah. it. Are we ready to move on? Yeah, let's do it. To number two here. Should it have been a movie or a book? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, so this one is actually being brought to us today by a student of mine so uh, as i mentioned earlier uh, my class is reading the song of roland yeah and we're about halfway through and have been having some really rich discussion over the text and one of my students asked me is there a movie based on this text and i didn't know the answer i said i don't think so i've I've not i don't know of one Mm -hmm. and he said well there should be and i Mm -hmm. said i'm gonna hold on to that yeah, because in six hours I'm going to need it, <laughs> and here I am. And so, uh, you know, um, should it have been a movie? I'm submitting for should it have been a movie? The Song of Roland. Uh, so, for our listening audience, The Song of Roland is a chanson, which is uh, an, an epic poem that is that was written in the high medieval period, but in between the uh, 10th and 13th centuries is generally is a good general time period for the high, what we consider the high medieval period. And if you're not familiar with that from a historical perspective, basically all of the tropes that you think about when you think about the medieval period, Big this castles. is where they come from. Big castles, knights, chivalry, yeah. damsels in distress. Horses with big drape yes. colored... Uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, the... the uh, shining armor. The coat of arms. By this time, they, had, they would have had like plate armor. Yeah. Yeah, all of those medieval tropes that you, when you think of, they really come from this time period. The, what, what, again, what's called by some historians the High Medieval Period. And uh, during this time period, a, a poem was written, um, 
and widely distributed across Western Europe called uh, The Song of Roland. It's actually part of a collection of poems um, that all focus on Charlemagne, um, who is not from the High Medieval Period. Charlemagne was um, from 400 years earlier. Yeah, or early Middle Ages. Uh, Charlemagne is like probably one of the first major monarchs to arise post rome post rome uh, yeah unless he, you count like the huns right uh, but they don't really they don't hang around long enough i don't think to have a legitimate claim to empire Charlemagne wasn't the only good one but he's probably he's the first famous. i think you i think you've said it right that yeah. he's he's definitely like the first major because his imperial uh, power well, after the fall of rome so his grandfather was charles martel right. is that right and that's his right. father was a guy named pepin the short that's right um and so anyway if you if you're ever on a trivia show and someone <laughs> says what was the name of the French king that ruled in such and such a year? You need to either guess Charles or Louis. Louis, that's right. And you've got about an eighty percent chance. <laughs> You'll be right of getting it if you get if it's one of those two. So, um, and then or Henry, that would be like a distant third. Yeah, but um, sure. But yeah, so Charlemagne, he's he's not from that era, but but the his era was a are, cool era. Yes, uh, and and these poems that were written in the high medieval period focus on the life and time of Charlemagne. Now, Song of Roland. Um, is um, has Charlemagne as a central character, but its its main protagonist is Roland, um, who is one of Charlemagne's knights. He's considered one of the twelve peers. Um, he is uh, regularly referred to in the text as Roland's right hand, and in the story, Roland is uh, nominated Charlemagne's right hand. Yes, Charlemagne's right yep. hand, um, which is uh, a metaphor for strength. Um, he is basically Char- Charlemagne's. <clears throat> excuse me. His greatest captain. His sword arm. His sword arm. Yeah. And so um, the poem is set at the end of Charlemagne's conquest of Spain. And Roland is nominated to uh, be in Charlemagne's rear rear guard. And a battle ensues. And heavy losses are suffered. And Charlemagne has to um, essentially... (coughs) Excuse me act in vengeance and so that that's the idea of the poem and uh the themes of the poem are incredible um it is a poem that first of all is very beautifully written um and is comprised of some very unique um literary elements that are sign that are uh, unique to that time period um while also sustaining some literary elements that you can find as being regular to uh, epic poetry, um, something like Kaisura verse, which is a thing I think we've talked about before. Um, but this is uh, all of the epic poems um, of the of the medieval period ha- are written this way, and it's kind of where we get that like sing songy Beowulf. Yeah. You know, he 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 raises his sword and he kills the dragon, and it's got it's just got this wonderful rhythm to it. Um, so it has some of those sort of timeless elements, but then it has some elements that are unique to it. Um, but uh, so, it's, so it's got some unique literary features. So if you're a fan of language, it's a great poem to read. But also, um, it's got some incredible themes. Uh, Brotherhood, Oliver and, um, is Roland's best friend. And together, they, they serve Charlemagne. And it's just a, a, an incredibly gripping story of camaraderie and brotherhood. Um, and there's some tension between them. That tension gets resolved. Um, and uh, it talks about, it very much depicts... Um, what brotherhood on the battlefield looks like, what death on the battlefield looks like. Um, it has um, 
themes of knighthood and chivalry. Um, lo- it, it calls into question and, and challenges the reader to think about what does it mean to be loyal? What does it mean to be a good subject of a king? What is your uh, duty? What is your duty? What What is required of you? What is faith? Um, it, it is it is uh, a contest of faiths. Um, the uh, in the eighth uh, century, Charlemagne did in fact have there was a battle uh, where Charlemagne's rear guard was destroyed um, by um, some natives of Spain called the Basques. Uh, but the poem changes the uh, villains in the story to be Saracens, and this is meant to reflect. The First Crusade, which yeah. is also happening mm-hmm. contemporarily when the poem is being yeah. uh, written and distributed across Western Europe. And, and also, Spain was under, at various times, threat of invasion from North African Saracens. Sure. sure. So that happened too. Yeah. And so um, it's clearly like y- you could you could make an argument that the poem is meant to sort of propagandize the First Crusade mm-hmm. and cause a, a crusading spirit. And, and, and I think you would you could rightly say that it, it was massively influential in creating a crusader spirit in Western Europe. Um, but to reduce it to propaganda, I think, is a, doing a disservice to the text, yeah. although it certainly plays a part. And uh, it's, it's just an, it's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's gripping. Um, it's got incredible themes. Um, there's a moment in the, in the poem where Roland is challenged by his best friend Oliver to sound his oliphant, which is his horn. Um, and uh, Roland chooses not to. He says, uh, for the fair land of France, no shameful song will be sung about me. Mm-hmm. And so he sees this as a as a sort of an admittance of defeat, it sounds like. And yeah, he, he's... Uh, the, the tension between Oliver and him is, is that with a rear guard, our job is not to win the battle. Our job is to delay until the army can return. And Oliver struggles with... Um, knowing the difference between a duty and uh, sort of an arrogance of we can take these guys so right. the numbers are overwhelming it's, yeah it's, it's two hundred thousand versus twenty thousand or right. something like that and um and but oliver's like we can take them you know we're in a bottleneck and we're just better than they are we don't need to sound the Ro- horn. just Roland. sorry rolling yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Oliver suggests, nah, sound the horn, right. and we'll fight until the rest of the army gets here, and then we'll just wipe them out. So, um, and, and yeah. it, it's a it's a really tense moment, and Roland um, chooses not to blow the horn, which ends up um, having significant consequences later, and uh, and so that that comes up again. Um, it's also, I mean, it's, it's violent. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredibly violent. Well, it reminds me of the Iliad. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of, of, uh, similar descriptions of the battle in the Iliad. Like, um, you know, so-and-so thrusts his spear through the chest of this other guy and it comes out the back and his heart comes with it or something. Right. right. And you get a lot of that similar, uh, and, and you can, it's of course it's translated. We not, neither of us can read it in the in the original sure. or even in modern French, which would probably be a fun thing to do if you if you could. But um, there will be several stanzas in a row where it'll talk about how this French knight fought against that Saracen knight, and he swung his sword so hard that it clove down through his helmet, through his head, all the way through his body, through his armor, and stopped right on his saddle or right. hit his horse and yeah. killed his horse too. Right, and that happens five times. <laughs> sure, and it's all different guys dying the same way. And you can tell when some bard or troubadour or whoever is reciting this in court, this would have been kind of the equivalent of like a chorus right. where 
you know, people may have even joined in in this part. Like, sure. These would be the rousing kind of exciting. Yeah, parts absolutely. Of the song. And and you're bringing up a good point too that when the song of Roland was originally consumed, it would have been consumed um, as an auditory piece. Yeah, mostly um, that the traveling bards would have been performed. It would be performed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably accompanied by some really monochromatic music. Um, simply very simple. Um, and bards would be singing the song. It's, it's mm-hmm. called the Song of Roland, right? It's the Chanson de Roland. Um, it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. And um, anyway, I, so so my my student asked me, why isn't there a movie? I said, I don't think there's a movie, but I'll check. And so I I did check, and what I was able to find in a very short amount of time is that in 1978 there is a French-made production mm-hmm. that is called the Chanson de Roland. Right, so okay. uh, the Song of Roland. And so I thought, oh, it looks like there is a, a, a movie that was made in 78. I started doing a little bit of digging, and it turns out that uh, this movie is not a depiction of the Song of Roland, but it is actually a historic um, retelling of the Song of Roland. And from my understanding, the way that the movie takes place is that it opens up with some uh, on, on a peasantry in the 11th century, okay. and someone is performing the Song of Roland. There's a bard, oh. and he's singing the Song of Roland, and then a bunch of shenanigans happen that's supposed to sort of like loosely mirror the song, the Song of Roland. So okay. like the idea is like, we're singing the Song of Roland, and then, oh, look, we're actually sort of in the story, but not really. Okay. And my understanding is that it's not very good. Well, um, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that it's it's not a very good film. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and that was all I was able to discover. Um, there are several like, um, re- like um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, dramatic readings okay. that you can find, yeah. Where like people are reading the text and mm-hmm. sort of performing it, um, but no, from from what from the very again, I, I didn't spend a ton of time, but from the very little bit of time that I spent, um, there is no mm-hmm. movie of the Song of Roland. I, I I was not able to to quickly at least find yeah. one, which means if there is one, it's it's lost to obscurity. And so uh, I think that this, this would make be a great- horribly expensive. This would be horribly expensive. Yeah, well, if you tried to make a historic epic out of this, um, it would be like Kingdom of Heaven or something. Yeah, Have you would, seen Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's a pretty good movie. That's a. I think that's a. I think it's a great movie. Yeah. It would be. Uh, yeah, I mean that's actually probably a really good. Um, now you uh, did you it. see the King? The Netflix movie, The King. This is a. Yeah, yeah, but those those movies <laughs> d- depict the Middle Ages as very like dour, and I don't know that that would work here because I feel like. No. The descriptions are so vivid. They are. And if I was to watch The Song of Roland, I wouldn't want black iron, chainmail, mud, rock. I would want colorful pennants. Yes. Gold swords. I mean, yes. the description of some of these things. There's one one of, the, one of the Saracens, I think, has a sword with a crystal hilt or, right. or something like that. Right. Um, and, you know, the the livery that the the uh, knights would be wearing i just i feel like there's a there's a, a lot of opportunity it Visually, is very bright the I, poem is very bright yeah 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 a lot of historians decry the fact that we think of the middle ages as dark and grim and everything's damp and like sort of the parody of that from uh monty python and the holy grail where <laughs> like the peasants are just gathering mud because they don't have anything else to do like it's a joke how like miserable everything is um, but uh, the Middle Ages would have had a lot more color. If you see the original uh, reproductions of like uh, cathedrals and how, okay, sure. we think of them as this kind of concrete gray colored facade, but they would have painted 
a lot of that to look very ornate and yeah. we just kind of missed that yeah so, and that's, that, that's the, the way this should be it, it, and i have zero confidence in anyone currently making movies to make this story well yeah because there's too much racial animus yeah, present in absolutely it. um it's really a religious thing and it nobody is. nobody's going to present christianity fairly in in modern movies unless it's a christian but like i say this is going to be very expensive to make a historical epic like this and there aren't any christian filmmakers that i know of that could probably muster that yeah that's but, a fair um, point uh it's also you know there's going to be too much oh we we really just misunderstand each other um Whereas in the song, we're all the Roland, same. It's clear. There's clear villainy. Yeah. Sure. Now some of the villains are French, right? But it's there's clear good and evil, and um, yeah. I mean Charlemagne uh, yeah. is a, is a, is a saint, right? And um, very similar to Arthur, you know. Which if you're if you're an Anglo-Saxon or if you're an English-speaking person, you're going to be more familiar with Arthurian lore. But in in French, they they also have Arthurian lore. But the the Charlemagne. Uh, has a has a similar body of yeah, lore, absolutely, and probably a more robust historical presence as well. Because yeah. there's a lot of people who don't think there was a King Arthur. I think that there probably was a King Arthur. Yeah, there was um, a King Arthur. And the question is how much of the stories are true. Sure. And with Charlemagne, there's a lot more kind of known about him. Right. Um, yeah. No. I, but, that's that, you, all. Yeah. Those points are good. Um, I I have very little faith in anyone in Hollywood. You're talking about um, the. I mean, faith plays such a central role in the text, and there is a clear good and evil. Um, but also, uh, I have very little faith that war can be depicted as it is depicted in the in the um, yeah in the in the text, because you know the 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 Franks are constantly you know championing you know for the for the fair land of france let no shameful song be sung about us mm -hmm. you know the last the first one to run is is a dirty coward yeah. right like the the their reputation matters their more reputation than their is life. more than their lives yeah. and uh and you know the, the text strikes such an incredible uh balance between the horror of combat because mm -hmm. it doesn't shy away from it. No. And and when people die, it's it's consequential. Yeah. You feel the weight of it. Yeah. Um it's it's it doesn't shy away from uh, it doesn't it, it doesn't romanticize war. Mm -hmm. Um but no. it but they do lose. It, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it is and it's horrific. Yeah. But it also but it it champions duty and loyalty and honor mm -hmm. and uh, submission to the king and and, and doing uh, what is required of you yeah. and, and and it glorifies that and i think to to the un uh, or, or to the to, for a quick read or, or to, to the uncareful eye you would you could very easily confuse that and say well it's just glorifying violence and yeah. i'm not going to do that it, it take you, you, it would take a very purposeful um, process to really capture what it, what the poem is really trying to do, yeah, um, and 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 do it well. But I, I agree, it would just be some gritty, dark, mm -hmm. right? Like Roland would would have like PTSD when we meet him, right? Yeah. Like like you know he's he's been slaughtering Saracens for yeah, six yeah. months or a year, or, or they whatever. or they just got back from killing all the children right. in the village or something, right. you know, some stupid some something thing. dumb like that. And um, I agree. I mean, it probably couldn't be done well right now, but if it could be done well i think it would be a fantastic sure yeah i mean i can see piece. it in my head yeah you know? and you can and that's the strength of the poem 
Uh, what? Who's the translator that you guys use? Do you remember? Uh, you put me on the spot, and I don't have my text in front of me. Um, I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head. It's yep. it's the Penguin Classics guy. The There's one. two Penguin Classics guys, oh, okay. unless they've discontinued one, okay. and I don't remember which which is which. actually there may be three because okay. there's Dorothy Sayers. Yes, we're not using Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy he Sayers, he is, references Dorothy, but she yeah. was one of the first Penguin Classics, um, like people, right? Oh, I, I don't know about that. I think I'm, I'm almost positive. Okay, she was one of the first. Okay. She was like ground level. Well, her her translation is very difficult. Yeah, because she took the time to work the poems so that it rhymes in English. Gotcha. And so she's really reaching in a few places to yeah. like find terms and phrases that work, and um, you're, it will expand your vocabulary quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but it's a it's a very clunky one, but it's also it rhymes, sure. and so if you if you value that, then that might be a good one to to approach. So anything else on Roland? No, I mean I, I'm I'm throwing it out there. First of all, uh, listening audience, read it if you've never read the Song of Roland. Yeah. It's well worth your time. It's pretty short, um, and uh, it's good. And then uh, if the, if you're an aspiring filmmaker and you're looking for your like, I'm going to dedicate my life to just doing one thing. Maybe the Song of Roland is for you. It's yeah. a great, it's got there's a lot to work with there. Do you know who would make a good, who would direct a Song of Roland? Well, hmm. I think Christopher Nolan. Yeah, you think? You think? I think. Trying to think. Did you ever watch uh, the T? No, that was his brother. That wasn't. That wasn't Nolan. That was. I think it was his brother who did that TV show. Um, I'm blanking on the thing, but it had the Jim Caviezel. He plays a uh, uh, like a ex military yeah, guy. Yeah. Um, um, I know the one you're talking. Gosh, about. it's such a good show. It's him and the like the bad guy from Lost. Yeah. And, and they have an AI right. that like that like tells you like crimes are about to happen. People are about to die, yeah, and they absolutely. gotta go find. It. Are they person? It's a person of interest. Person of interest. That's is that it? It? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah I watched that's that for a little while. It was pretty interesting. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was fun. I didn't know that that he was a relative. I th- yeah, I think he's a Nolan's brother. I think okay. is the one. Well, who that was, was that was a pretty. I don't remember show. if he was a director or if he was the writer. Oh, okay. something he was involved in some significant way. Okay, but, well, interesting. Yeah, what do you think? Storytelling one on one. Okay, one more thing before we move on yeah. from this. I've been uh, I've, I've been listening to the audiobook of the Three Musketeers. Oh, okay. Um, the unabridged, like the real one, and I think it's worth noting that up until and so Dumas wrote this post post revolution, but before Napoleon, if I remember right. And so, but it's written about the, this particular book. He wrote several books about these characters. A lot of people don't know that. There's like five about right. these guys. But the first one is The Three Musketeers. It takes place during the reign of Louis Thirteenth, And a major theme, they're fairly lighthearted books. They're not, they're not nearly as like uh, weighty as the Song of Roland. But the, a major theme of it is the role of honor in the musketeer's life. So there's a lot of dueling. There's a lot of like... You insulted me, so I'm going to try to kill you. Right. Um, which you would think now is like an overreaction. But I just find that interesting that that's a part of the French um, culture, going yeah. back at least as far as the Song of Roland. Sure. And, um, you know, continuing into heroes, which we still we still look to as heroic yeah. to this day. But that just made me think of it. Yeah, it's, I mean... And bring it back, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, like yeah. we have all these gritty antiheroes who, mm. you know, are willing to sacrifice their code for the greater good or whatever. And I don't know. We we had a we had a pretty heated discussion in my classroom today about like should Roland have blown his horn or not. And uh, it was great, you know. And there's a lot to talk about there. But it is telling. As I was just listening, I was letting the kids kind of go at it. 
and um, just telling to me like there were there, there were plenty of there was plenty of condemnation heaped hmm. on heaped on the on the Franks for and Roland specifically for you know sacrificing the lives of the soldiers that he's supposed to be caring for, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and saying that like he didn't he's he 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 acts you know wrongly, and I think you can make an argument for that. I mean, yeah. Oliver tells him, you know, essentially. That he's he's acted recklessly, right? I think he's that the wisdom. poem is written in such a way that uh, that's probably always been a question that the reader has to wrestle right. with. I, I don't know I that agree. there's ever been a time when, like, oh, the original audience would have immediately right. known this was good or right. bad. Right? They, they would have always been like a hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's why I think it would make such a good movie. Yeah, is because if you did it rightly, yeah, um, you would have to wrestle with it. Right, like if the yeah. if the director doesn't take a position, mm-hmm. right? Because and the, the poem doesn't take heavily, a position. It's going to depend on the actor's performance as well. Sure, like how are they going to show their decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so it's intriguing, yeah. man. It's yeah. it would be great, mm-hmm. but I don't have a lot of confidence it could be done. Yeah. All right, storytelling one one. Yeah. So I have some I have something for us. So. This is a pet peeve of mine. Just I'm going to take it over this episode. I am. I'm, 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 I'm going to just turn off my <laughs> mic and go. Uh, well, don't don't turn it off yet because I need you, I need you to weigh in here. <laughs> okay. This is a pet peeve of mine with modern storytelling, and so I'm going to get on my soapbox. I'm going to get a little oh, preachy. Okay, okay. We do so, this a lot in our, in our own time, <laughs> so we may as well record it. It nothing is worse to me than when an intellectual property is taken over by a group of people, and they take well-established characters. And they cause them to behave in ways that are inconsistent with previous iterations of the character. Okay. Okay. So, the the storytelling 101 is that characters need to act consistently within the frameworks of their arcs. Yes. Okay. So, when you're telling a story and you're moving characters along, Mm -hmm. we often refer to their progress or their growth as their character arc. That's sort of the common term for it. What what are they at the beginning of the story versus changes that the story kind of causes to develop and then what are they at the end where are they at the end usually there's a clear problem the story happens and then there's a resolution leaving us seeing oh this character has learned they've grown they're a different person than they were when they started yeah that's what your arc is so when we refer to an arc we're talking about the character what's the difference between the guy at the beginning and the guy at the end yeah absolutely um and that's well that's well done um and so, character arcs are a big part of why we go to, to or why we even enjoy stories, right? We, we um, there are, first of all, there are different kinds of characters in stories. There are dynamic, generally speaking, they can fall into two categories. Um, they can be dynamic or they can be static. Yeah. Dynamic characters have an arc. Yeah. They have some kind of change or growth. They experience some kind of something that, that when, by the time the story is over, they are fundamentally different Mm-hmm. than when the story began mm-hmm. in some significant way. And then there are static characters. These are characters that don't change. Right. And they're typically, um, just the general idea is that static characters have particular functions within stories, but they're typically not your protagonist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Usually they're not. That would be an unusual structure. It would be. I think uh, it's been there done. Is one, there is one very famous one that's been done. Okay. Um, the... The question, and my brother, I have to give my brother credit because he's the one who kind of tipped me off on this. Um, who is the character? Who is the dynamic character in Back to the Future? Um, Marty McFly's dad. Yeah. 
Okay. Marty McFly's dad yeah. is the one that has the the growth, and it's kind of yeah. weird because it's in like an inverse pattern. Yeah, yeah, it is. But Marty McFly doesn't change. Yeah, he's static. He doesn't. He's he's the same as he in the beginning as he is at the end. And we could probably think of other examples. Yeah, there's. Too, but that's, that's a good one. That's yeah. a really good one, yeah. right? So that's a really that that story is so interesting because it takes it takes that kind of flips it on its head and mm-hmm. does it in a way that's masterful. Um, but that's not our conversation today. So, uh, but that's that's the idea. So you have dynamic characters, you have static characters. Villains can be dynamic. Or they can be static. Mm-hmm. Protagonists can be dynamic or static, as we just talked about. Um, but that's the idea. And and a character can be interesting and static. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we mentioned the Marvel movies before. Thanos was a pretty compelling villain, but he's static. Yeah, like he doesn't. There's no. There's no growth. Right. He has a clear goal that he keeps focused on the whole time, and then even when he loses, he mo- he he bemoans the fact that he's lost. Right. And that he thinks. That because he's lost, the universe has lost also. Right. He's wrong, but um, there's no there's no moment for him where he says, "Oh, I was wrong," and then he dies. You know. Sure. Um, so I mean, like like all a Darth Vader, right? Right. He has at the very end, he has a growth, and he's redeemed, and so he's a dynamic villain. But. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. but you don't have to. In other words, you don't have to be dynamic to be intriguing. Yeah, that's that's well said. Yeah, d- dynamic does not equal interesting, and static does not equal boring. They serve different functions and different purposes. But whether your character is dynamic or static, what is important is that they're consistent. Yeah, right. That that because because if characters are not consistent, then it it sucks your audience right out of the story because suddenly they're they're thinking and saying and doing things mm-hmm. that are antithetical to who they are fundamentally yeah. as yeah. as as beings right and so or this, this can also be if the arc is insufficiently yeah realized right. Right? sure you, you want to get your guy from point a to point b and then for some reason he's at point b but there's no you haven't gotten the, there. the earth the the earth the growth has not been earned right uh, by by struggle through this through this uh, the events of the story yeah so so there are lots of different reasons that that would be one example of reasons why this doesn't happen or how if you're a storyteller you may be falling into this error yeah. right so to be to again to be clear the characters need to act consistently within the framework of their arcs whether they're dynamic or static that that is sort of the golden rule mm-hmm. it can be broken in in many different ways so you can fall into error in many different ways i think the most common for young storytellers or new storytellers or people who don't have experience with storytelling is that they have in their heads a clear arc but they haven't done the work Yes. To push their character along, which is what yeah. you were just talking about, right? Yeah, it would be, you know, your character uh, starts out the story as a coward. And then chapter two comes around and they do something courageous. Right. And the audience is going, wait a minute, what? I thought they were a coward. Sure. When did they get courage? How right. do we know that? Is there something that... Now, you could do that in a very short span. Absolutely. Let's say, for instance, your character is a coward, but he has a big crush on the on the prom queen. And the prom queen steps out in front of a bus. And so your character runs over and pushes her out of the way really quick. Well, he's motivated by something, right? right? And he may still be kind of a coward, but he has proved just a little bit to himself that he can take action. He can do courageous things Sure. when he has he's something acted, he cares about. He's acted in a way that's inconsistent with his nature, but there's plausible explanation yes. for why he's acted yes. in a way that's inconsistent with his nature. That's fine, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's good. In fact, it's used to great effect lots of different ways um what's what's not okay is when there is no plausible explanation for why a character would act inconsistently with their with within their nature 
as you have set it up as the storyteller. And so that's a that's an error, and and we could definitely look at different things because because you know there are plenty of examples of of mediocre storytelling where it's like yeah they didn't really get them there right mm-hmm. I, I see what they're trying to do, but that's actually not really what I want to talk about because um, where I started is the what's more frustrating to me is when a character has a clear well defined well established character arc and then someone takes that character over takes mm-hmm. over that character and then does whatever they want with them yeah. right to me that is it is a heinous story the character crime. like it's a blank slate yeah exactly yeah. When, when 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 there's already established things so i we do this all the time but the easiest example is because it's really bad storytelling is the sequel trilogy of star wars mm-hmm. right so luke skywalker has a very clear character arc he starts off as a naive farm boy who has romanticized combat and wants to and is living in a sort of an escapism, right? Wants to right. leave the wants to leave the family farm. Um, he has a tragic event in his life that causes him to leave the farm, and and his whole adventure with Han Solo and Leia reveals to him the the naivete of his youth mm-hmm. right um that war isn't this romantic thing but it also instills in him a virtue to overcome evil with good right. through discipline and training yeah and through trials mm-hmm. he becomes the hero that he's sure. supposed to be in order to overthrow yeah. right and so that this is this is just a quick summary of, of his arc i think that if you were to if you were to to want to see this visualized you could very easily if you've got a, if you've got a copy of the old movies put in episode 4 watch the scene where luke is introduced his first scene jawas show up with the droids and he's kind of a whiny yes uh, teenager right. who's annoyed that he has chores when he was planning on wasting time with his friends and going to the Tashi station to pick up some power converters. <laughs> Once that scene is done, take the DVD out or whatever you're doing. Take Return of the Jedi and switch to the scene where Luke goes into Jabba's palace. Right. And see how the actor portrays the same character differently. Now, of course, you're skipping a whole movie and all kinds of stuff that happens in between. But you can see that he goes from being a whiny little farm boy to being a man who's really in control of himself. Right. And, and that's not even the, really the termination point of the character. Right. But he's grown into a... And, and of course, that's all earned. Right? Sure. We've so so the error that you described earlier would be if, if, if there was no movie in between. Sure. If you go from Tashi Station yep. to Jabba's Palace. Now, you get a little... At the end of Episode 4, you have Luke flying an X-Wing against the Death Star. Yeah. But we've been told 50 billion times the whole movie that he's a great pilot. Right. So we know, because we've been told, that he's he's this great pilot, and uh, he's comfortable in this setting. He's in his element, and he's not that whiny kid anymore. And he's taking it, He's taking life seriously. Right. Um, but uh, this is not the termination point of his character overall, but inside the context of just the one movie, right. there's an arc. There's a clear arc. Yeah, and yeah. so that, that movie was satisfying. Absolutely. And that's why we got two sequels. Right. You know? So, yeah, that's that's great, man. Um, and, and the Disney sequel trilogy, meanwhile. Right. <laughs> right. So now we fast forward to the Disney sequel trilogy, and Luke Skywalker is a hermit. He's completely disillusioned with the Force. He's completely disillusioned with the Jedi Order. Um, he has turned his back on his friends. He's he's become a recluse. He wants nothing to do with our new protagonist. Um, and so the question you got to ask yourself is, you know, is is it plausible that Luke Skywalker would do this? 
right? Um, and I, and the the explanation that we're given is that um, Luke essentially falls in love with his own legend, and when uh, the Jedi, the new Jedi Order, comes crumbling down around him, he just gives up. Yeah, and what well, that, as if he's never had a setback, right? And know? so that's and that's why it's that's why it doesn't sit well, mm-hmm. is because he's had so many setbacks. He's he's experienced death and loss before. Yeah, right. He he has experienced every trial and has and has overcome them all. And now he he suddenly doesn't have the strength, the fortitude of character to to press on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is 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 laughable, and and as laughable as that is, it gets even worse when you look at the other two, Han Solo and Princess Leia. Yeah, they're they're not even given good plausible explanation. No, um, there's really no explanation. Uh, you know, outside. Well, I, I guess Kylo Ren, their son, but the, the sort of the loss of their son um, is the idea. But yeah, it just th- these characters do not do not exist in a vacuum. I'll give you another example. Um, Toy Story 4, which is, you're like, why are you talking about animated films? Well, you know, Toy Story 4, Woody Woody is a character that has a really clear character arc in, through the first three films of Toy Story. He begins um, as a sort of a know-it-all uh, who's really self-assured in his position and um, doesn't appreciate the the duty and, uh, uh, and, and the necessity of... of bringing joy and love to a child and his adventure with buzz trying to convince buzz that he's a toy helps woody to understand what does it mean to actually be a toy yeah right and what is my purpose and then in the second film he's confronted with his own mortality right yeah. he he knows what his purpose is mm-hmm. but what what do you do when you can't fulfill that purpose anymore yeah it's a devastating question yeah one that one that plagues all of you has he, plagued humankind he, for since our since our fall yeah. and so you he know he has that temptation as well to to allow himself to be kind of put up on a pedestal right as the collectible sure yeah I've, I've done my time yeah right i've i've paid my dues time for an easy it's time life for, yeah it's time yeah. for an easy life and and by the end of that film he comes, you know. He comes to the realization: No, I've still got work to do, mm-hmm. and I will do that work as long as I can. Yeah. Right. And then in the third film, which I'm I'm not quite as familiar with, but um, it's it's sort of a similar idea of getting back to and 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 and, and passing on the torch, like do it, like like continuing after. Like, do I continue to be a toy when Andy's grown up? Right. That's the idea. Yeah. Right. Like, and and again. But but it's not so. Woody doesn't so much struggle in that film with that. He knows mm-hmm. it's just circumstances have sort of drawn him away, and he's trying to get back. Yeah. And so, but he but he knows because of the first two films, he knows what his duty is. And then in the fourth one, for reasons surpassing all understanding, <laughs> he just forgets. He forgets the duty of a toy, and he abandons what it means to be a toy, and in order to I don't know retire with the strong female. Like it. It mean he behaves in ways that are just. It totally inconsistent with his character, and that that's major thematic stuff. But then also, when you look at like little things, like the way that he treats Buzz, like these are two he these are two buddies who have been on adventures, yeah, right, their whole their whole life, right, like just doing different things, and like Buzz is an idiot, and Woody thinks that he's like it just mm-hmm. none of it makes sense. I yeah. mean, it's like they're two totally different people. Um, well, it's probably two di- totally different writers. Yeah, sure. And they may have even been trying to go for a reboot. Like a, you see that a lot, where it's like, well, we're going to kind of do our own thing. Okay, then do your own thing. Then do your own thing. Right. I mean, clearly, what's happening in Hollywood, you have producers, right? Producers are the guys who write the checks to pay for the movie to be made, and they want their money back and they want interest, and so 
um, in order to to get that, they want to mitigate risk as much as possible. It's the same as any other investment. Yeah. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, let me borrow money. I want to open a restaurant. You're going to say, well, tell me about your restaurant. I want to know what your plan is for making money. How sure. are you going to do this? And I mean, it's the same thing a bank would say to you if you wanted to get a loan for a business. And so why why are there so many reboots and sequels? Because a, a producer looks at a, at a film and they see, oh, it's got a Star Wars on it. There's a whole bunch of diehard loyalists who will see anything, literally anything, with the Star Wars logo on it. Right. So you know at least you're going to sell those tickets. Now, the fact that the movie isn't really a Star Wars movie, it just has the logo on it, and we've maybe cast a few people, and it kind of has some similar props, which is my, I would I would contend, like you'd look at like the book of Boba Fett, right? Mm. Like, give me a break. Sure. You know? What a train wreck. And, yeah. But there's going to be people who are going to defend that till their dying day because <laughs> it has Star Wars on it. That's right. And um, so that's less risky than making an original story with new stuff. Yeah. Um, so you look for those kinds of things. That's part of the reason why books get made into movies. You know, Harry Potter was going to be a movie, foregone conclusion. Oh, yeah. The second the first book hit the shelves and it started selling like crazy, you knew it was immediately going to be a movie. Sure. And they knew that because they knew all the people who bought the books were going to buy tickets to see the movie at least once. Right. So guaranteed. Um, Marvel sequels. Now, some of this stuff, you know, after a while, the, the risk starts to kind of creep back in when you have fatigue. Right. You know, Marvel movies aren't doing as well as they used to. I mean, like we were just saying, Disney about to have to fire a bunch of people because they're having a hard time making money on their movies but um you know that's that's why you see these things so I, i'm convinced that part of the reason why these ips are getting so badly abused is because they've they've brought in creatives who don't care right they don't like the ips right but they're basically forced to use them because the producers don't want to risk original content sure as much sure and it would, I think it would be better served, although I'm pretty well convinced that most of these concepts would flop right. without the IP attached to it because right. they're not good. Right. They're just not good stories. And if, you know, I, I maintain to this day that if episode one of Star Wars was the first Star Wars movie, there would never have been more. Yeah. Nobody would have cared. And the same would be true if Episode Seven was the first Star Wars movie. I think now that one was the least bad of the sequels. Right, but, like it's it's not very good. Sure. And so I just don't know that it would have justified its budget. Yeah, no, I, that's right. Basically, the whole Star Wars Empire, no pun intended, is resting on the Empire Strikes Back. Right. Because. It's it's one of the best movies ever made. Sure. And even episode four would have been probably relegated to like, oh, it was pretty good. Um, but without the other two movies in the trilogy, it's just pretty good. Right. You know, with the other two movies, it's one of our great epics. Sure. And, uh, you know, so I, we see this a lot with movies. Yeah, We absolutely. see this with, I mean, The Critical well, Drinker had a really good uh, video not that long ago about kind of ip characters getting abused he brought up rocky mm. um and rocky rocky's an interesting one because if you watch the rocky films the original ones the first three are pretty good yeah. the fourth one is famous because of how bombastic and over the top it is right and it is a fun one to watch but it's not as good of a movie rocky doesn't really have like an arc in it much it's just that he's mad the whole time because his friend dies and so he trains and gets revenge basically um, and then Rocky five, which almost nobody remembers is Rocky's retired, but he's now like 
penniless and he's not he's lost his boxing license there's some illusions in the fourth one that his fight with the russian guy is going to be unsanctioned and he's going to get in trouble but he wants to do it anyway so he kind of throws away his all the stuff that he's earned because he wants this personal matter settled right which i can i can get behind that sure but then the fifth one comes around and he's kind of a washed up has been and i don't know about that right sure <laughs> you know um i don't even if even if he had kind of lost some of his financial stuff i just don't see people forgetting about him if in the context of the rocky universe right and right. just kind of not knowing who he is so he takes on a, a protege and, and trains him and the guy that he took on um was a real boxer um whose name i can't remember off the top of my head but he eventually had to leave the sport because he got hiv and which you can't do in boxing because it's not uncommon for people to bleed. You right, know, you get cut and get hurt and stuff. So he had to, he had to uh, to go out. But um, uh, fairly interesting movie. But it's one where the Rocky character is very very different and kind of unjustifiably different from the previous right. movies. Now you have the new Creed films, and Rocky has given up on life. He's like a like a deadbeat who doesn't care about anything, um, and. Apollo Creed's son shows up and is like, can you train me? Because I know that you knew my dad. And um, so they're, they're just kind of rebooting the Rocky films right. with, with now Sylvester Stallone playing the Mickey role. Right. But it doesn't make any sense that Rocky would be so like downtrodden and broken. Well, like it would be better. Like Rocky as a, as a Mickey is great. Like, yeah, give me, yeah. like, like, I that love when the hero idea. transitions to the mentor. Yeah. But, like, he should have his own gym. Like, he should oh, just yeah. be doing it for everybody. Yeah. And Creed should just stroll in and be like, and he should be like, you know, and then You're it's special, still impactful. You know? Right. It's yeah. still impactful because of the history. Mm-hmm. You don't have to add this thing about him being washed up and given yeah. up on life and that, like, Creed is the thing that saves him because it just it, that's not who Rocky is, right? Yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a character that literally is created to inspire hope that, like, the little guy, yeah. right? The no name. You have to through take strength your shot. and perseverance yeah. and taking the hard licks. Yeah, can rise to the challenge, right? And yeah, like, the first three, he's so defeated. Like I say, the first three are pr- the first one is the best one. Sure. The first one, the theme of the first one is when when the chance when you get your chance, you got to take your shot. Because in that one, if you're not if you haven't seen it in a while, the first Rocky movie is about Apollo Creed, who um, and this this is a cool story too because Sylvester Stallone had this passion project. He was nobody, right? Um, and he he stumped around Hollywood looking for somebody that would help him make this movie, and they finally did. And of course, he turned into a big international superstar. And um, but he uh, so Rocky is is basically a nobody boxer kind of. He has a professional boxing license, but he isn't like a real. You know, he doesn't compete often. Right. He's essentially a mob enforcer. That's like what he does for a living. But he's poor, dirt poor, lives in Philadelphia on the wrong side of the tracks. Has a crush on the girl that owns a pet store down the road. And um, uh, and so Apollo Creed is, is a heavyweight champ of the world. But people don't like him because he's like lost touch with like the, the regular people and so they're like well, let's do an exhibition bout with some pro from around here like a local guy that people know and we'll um you know just kind of broadcast it and it'll be like a way for you to kind of get some public right it's a pr credit. stunt yeah it's a pr stunt and they they come to rocky and initially he's like nah i don't think it's a good idea and mickey i think is the one who convinces him like which is where you get the famous you could have been a contender you right. know um because because mickey had seen him training and he was like you have real talent you could do this if you would take it seriously and try 
And so Rocky's faced with this choice of like, do I go in there and get my brains beat out by the best boxer in the world? Or do I just kind of not try? Right. Or do I train and like really try to win? Yeah, shoot my shot. And so he does and he, he trains it up. And then of course at the end of the movie, it ends up being basically a draw. So there's not the big triumphant victory in the first film, but the fact that he's able to go toe to toe with, with one of the best boxers in the world, like propels him to professional boxing excellence. Right. And that's the theme. And the second one is kind of similar. And the third one is like, what do you do when you lose? Like, do you, do you bounce back? Do you just quit and go away? Right. So great stuff. Yeah. All and stuff. just he's earned he's earned every everything he's got. And and then they just kind of poop on him in yeah. the sequels. <laughs> just, I mean, just I mean, but it's but it's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. It's he's a character who's predicated on when life smacks you down yeah you get up off the mat yeah that's 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 what rocky's about if, yeah. if you could boil it down to a cookie uh, a yeah. fortune cookie you, you do, know a piece of paper you do one-handed push-ups right <laughs> you drink off the floor you drink 12 eggs right yeah. or whatever you know whatever yeah. but what you know you when life hits you down you get back up and mm-hmm. it's like it's not even about winning it's just no. about fighting. Yeah, just right? stand You just around. keep fighting. Yeah. That's Rocky. Yeah. And then in the see, in the Creed movies, he's like, I'm not going to fight. <laughs> like, I'm done fighting. I've got like, cancer. I've got cancer. I'm just going to die. Yeah. I don't care anymore. It's like... I'm sad. This, this is... So, okay. I've got I, the I big do wanna, sad. I do want to leave the, the listening audience, and we do have to talk about Lord of the Rings. Eventually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I do want to leave them with how to do it right. Okay. Okay. So, Maverick okay, is the yeah, quintessential... This, I've heard this, I've heard this, this from a couple people. He's the quintessential version of doing this well yeah right where maverick um has a very particular arc in the in his first film back back in the 80s um he's a hotshot pilot who is is got really great instincts but doesn't play by the rules Mm -hmm. and the whole um point of of his time in top gun he doesn't take things seriously right because he thinks that his talent will get him it's out enough. of any tight spot. Right. And 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 it's not just true in his flying, right? Like he's 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 sort of smart mouthed, doesn't really respond well to authority. Mm-hmm. Um he's a ladies man, right? Like he thinks he could talk his way out of every uh, you know, yeah. the flybys, right? Like he mm-hmm. I could just talk my way out of whatever. But right? he's not he's not a team player. He's not a team player. Um Goose is his only friend. Yeah. Um and just his co pilot, if uh, you haven't seen that. And uh and so he in, in the movie he grows to be a wingman. Like he learns yeah. the value of, you know, being a team player, being there for your guy, mm-hmm. right? Um, he overcomes fear, the fear of failure, um, the the crisis of confidence, and his and, and he's incredibly talented. But he learns the value of um, being part of something bigger than himself. Yeah. He, he begins to learn that one ace is not as good as a squadron of, of guys that are, are a good team working together right. in this setting. Right. So. That's great. And so now you, you fast forward to the sequel that's coming out, you know, three decades later. Um, and you know, just based on the trend in Hollywood, you're just terrified, right? Like yeah, what's sure. it going to be like, yeah. you know, some deconstructed, you know, loser of a mm-hmm. of a guy like who, a who's got to be, be who's going to be bested by some female pilot. He's like, he's like a crop duster, right, or something. Right, exactly, <laughs> and that's not what happens, man. Yeah. He is he's still a hot shot pilot. Mm-hmm. He still has got great instincts, and he's still pushing, you know, himself to the limit. But 
he hasn't lost the lesson learned mm-hmm. about the value of 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 the squad, the value of the of your wingman, and the whole movie is him. You know, try it's all it's all captured in the in the one phrase where he's talking to the commanding officer and they're laying out the um, the stat like what is what are the terms of success right like what's the mission objectives mm-hmm. did we complete them and Maverick adds and everybody comes home yeah right like everybody comes home alive yeah because that's the lesson he learned in the first movie yeah right like that's how you, that success is doing the thing and coming home alive yeah you and your guys yeah right we're not losing another goose mm-hmm. and and so the whole movie is him imparting that wisdom to a new squad of pilots and it's just incredible man like this is a character where that doesn't uh, the the thing I wanted to say and maybe I've said it already but characters don't exist in a vacuum yeah right yeah. they they have clear arcs mm-hmm. and this is a character who is who is the same right like I you can go from from Top Gun to Top Gun Maverick and it is a consistent fluid continuation growth it is one story mm-hmm. in a way that you can't do with these other things yeah because the character has been divorced from his arc and now you're just watching some guy who looks like rocky and talks like him but it's not really him yeah looks like woody talks like woody but it's not really him mm-hmm. looks like luke talks like luke but it's not really same, him. same actor different character yeah I, you know and so you know that the this end what's incredible to me and i'll end with this is Top Gun Maverick was incredibly successful and is still yes. incredibly Isn't successful. Isn't that interesting? And y- you just wonder mm-hmm. how often do you have to do a thing and lose? I don't know. Man. Before you realize, you know what? We need just need, need to learn our lesson here. Yeah. That's 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 the question. But storytelling one hundred and one characters have arcs. Yep. They don't exist in vacuums. And if you're if you're writing one, you got to keep that in mind. Make sure they act consistently. Yeah. Within the framework of their arcs. All right. All right. You ready? So it's time for. Lord of the Rings, part two. We've really only got three things to talk about here, three major things, and it's going to take us until the sun comes up, I'm pretty sure, because <laughs> that's the way the last one went. We that's really true. only talked about three things last time. That's true. So we're going to start off uh, with, you know, we, we briefly did a plot synopsis last time, just to hit you with it again. Magic ring. If a, if a dark wizard gets the magic ring he made, he takes over the world. A more or less defenseless half-sized person has to carry it through fire and death to throw it into the crater of an active volcano to keep him from getting it. Meanwhile, the dark wizard sending his army against uh, the the nearby human civilization to try to wipe them out, and a, a cast of characters are trying to stop that and protect the, the ring bearer. And um, there's wizards and monsters and all sorts of other stuff in the intervening period. So Great. Um, if you haven't seen the films, you need to go and, and see them. And uh, if you haven't read the books, you need to do that. Yeah. So we've given you six months since the last episode. So you should have done all this stuff. That yeah. was your homework. The spoiler alert thing it was disclaimer. The spoiler disclaimer yeah. that's well yeah. expired. Yeah. <laughs> no excuses. So here. this is a this is a twenty something. Let's see. Two thousand three was the first one. So are we twenty? Two thousand one. Two thousand one. So we're twenty two years past the first one. This is, I guess, the twentieth anniversary of Return of the King. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough. So we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to start, we're going to do characters, basically. We're going to kind of focus this discussion on characters and the discrepancies between the way the characters were shown in the film versions and the way that they were written in the book versions. Now, last time we were mostly complimentary or or we mostly defended um, their decisions. May not have been the same decisions we did, but I think that they were very justifiable in most cases. Sure. 
I mean, we talked about Tom Bombadil not being present. We talked about the different uh, way the ring affected people a little bit. Um, so Aragorn. this time, yeah, Aragorn was a big one that we spent a lot of time on. Yeah. And um, uh, this time we're going to talk about things which we take a little more issue with. So <laughs> and be our negative this was episode. not intentional, no, um, no, but here it is. Yeah, so we're starting off with Faramir. So tell us about who Faramir is. Yeah. So Actually, let me tell about who Faramir yeah, is because I feel like you're going to speak, you're going to talk a lot during this segment. I'm not going to get to say much because you know more about this than me. Faramir is a captain of Gondor. He is the younger brother of Boromir, one of the original nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring, and he is the younger son of Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor. And the stewards are the line of men. It was a hereditary line that took over management of Gondor, which is the human kingdom. Um, when the last king uh, kind of went off the throne and, and went into exile. Um, so Aragorn is the last of that line of kings, and he is on his way home to take back the throne. Yeah. And nothing will be correct until he does. Now, the Silmarillion tells us that a lot of the, the, the stewards did a pretty good job. And Denethor was a pretty good steward until a certain point. Um, and he got blackpilled from being on uh, Palantir social media too much. <laughs> and um, and Sauron was able to kind of fill his head with um, with uh, either illusions or he just showed him so many negative things that Denethor was convinced that the end was nigh and there was nothing that could be done. Yeah. So he kind of had given up hope. He had lost his way. Um, and he had two sons. Older son, Baromir, strong, military, war captain, uh, man of action, man of few words. Um prone to be hot-headed yeah faramir younger son uh less favored by the father less similar to the father uh man of letters certainly a capable warrior on his own but he's more of a thinking man more of a more of a man of strong spirit and less a man of of strong sword arm um i would say he's more of a complete man yeah yeah um and so so faramir we encounter for the first time in the two towers is that right uh we encounter faramir in return of the king i'm trying to think no, of no. the movie sorry yeah in the movie it's two towers and that's true in the books too sorry. okay i'm i'm backwards now um now the the this, we don't meet him until after Baromir has died. Baromir dies in a, in a redemptive, sacrificial death trying to save hobbits. So he dies a good man after having made some pretty grievous errors uh, during his life. Right. Faramir has learned of this through... Uh, really, um, the, the movie makes it look more mundane. The movie makes it look like, well, yeah, his body washed down. Mm -hmm. Or does he even you know, no, uh, he, he does know. It's alluded to it in the extended edition. Okay. You have to watch the yeah. extended edition to get it. Um, I guess in the original version, he doesn't really explain how they know, but when the hobbits find Faramir, so by this time, Frodo and Sam have departed from the rest of the Fellowship. They're traveling through the region of Gondor, which um, Faramir is kind of in charge of, mm -hmm. and his and his rangers, which are kind of a light infantry uh, type scout unit. Scout unit, yeah. They're in charge of Athelion, which is on the border with, with Mordor. So they have problems all the time. But Athelion is the breadbasket of Gondor. It's the most fertile. Uh, it's famous for its gardens and its vibrant botany. And um, 
and and that's a fitting place for this Faramir character to be. Yeah, it is. So that's who he that's who he is. That's kind of how we meet him and come across him. And um, so let's talk about him, movie versus book. Yeah, Faramir. that's that's great. It's a great introduction. Um, in the movie, we'll start there. Faramir is introduced to us as a young captain who um, has perhaps some inferiority complex issues. Um, his father favored his older brother, and when he's first introduced to us, he's beset by all kinds of pressure to turn the tide of the war. And he's 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 a bit dark and brooding um, because of the many trials that he's faced. As uh, that's how he's introduced to us when when the hobbits sort of stumble upon him, without. Uh, second thought he takes them captive um, and when he discovers that Frodo is bearing the ring of power he um, much like his brother before him uh, decides to take Frodo back to Minas Tirith believing that the ring is the answer to all of their problems sure um, and which uh, is a typical error in the movie you will see there's lots of people who are torn about well should we use the ring against him right against uh, sauron let's it's yeah. revealed of course repeatedly you can't if you try you'll just you know the ring has a mind of its own very few characters can master it now the book goes into more detail about that and it basically explains that a person could eventually master it if they had sufficient willpower and they they practiced and they worked and even Frodo demonstrates like later on, which we'll talk about this some too because we're going to discuss yeah, Frodo sure. and Gollum and Sam. But he has the ability to kind of overawe Gollum because Gollum's slavish devotion to the ring and the ring bearer, and after having it for so long, Frodo has kind of developed a little bit of of ability, but he n- nowhere near what Sauron can right. Do Sauron and can dominate whole regions. That's the idea: is that like if you took if you if you put the if you tried to wield the ring, oh, one of two things will happen. You'll either master it and become a new Sauron. Yeah, you'll be just as bad. Um, yeah. Or you you actually will just end up becoming his his slave, yeah. right? That that you won't master it; he'll master you yeah. through it. And so, either way, it's you're gonna die. Yeah. You're gonna lose. The right? ring is altogether evil. Yeah, it, and can, it cannot be used. It for cannot good. be used for good. And so, in the movies, Faramir falls to the temptation of the ring. He he discovers what it is, and he sends Frodo back to Minas Tirith. Um, but then. Um, sort of at the last, in, in the final hour, in the eleventh hour of the film, um, when a Nazgul attacks, um, Faramir is moved by a speech that Sam gives—an incredible delivery of a speech by Sean Astin in the film—and um, it's, it's sort of he sort of reassesses and remembers his his days as as being Gandalf's pupil which is sort of alluded to in the Return of the King the movie the Return of the King he also d- to be fair here he does not feel the character does not f- um, give the impression that he has uh, a firm resolution about his decision to take the ring back and he seems unsure I think it's significant too that he doesn't take it right right he's he says he just, he's sending it back to his father yeah and, and that's why I think in the movies we're supposed to think that he's motivated by trying to win his father's approval right and that that's you don't really get that in the movie the two towers mm-hmm. it's set up in the two towers but it's really revealed in return of the king mm-hmm. um well he does say um tell my father that i'm sending him a, a mighty, mighty gift. gift right yeah. and, and so, so yeah it is it is offered it's up set up a, in yeah. there and then in the movie the return of the king that's when you start to see some of the backflashes mm-hmm. and you start to see some of the some of him, him and his father engage mm-hmm. um and you realize like oh they got Denethor, Denethor yeah. loved Boromir more than Faramir. Now mm-hmm. his decision 
with Frodo back in the Two Towers makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think is kind of what they're going for, and it's not bad. Like that in and of itself as a storytelling choice is not terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, if this were not Lord of the Rings, right? Like sure. if you took yourself out of Lord of the Rings yeah. and you just did it. We so, said that a few times. I mean, like if it's if it's taken in its context of movie only, if you're just evaluating the movie by right. itself, that that's there's really no no, no problem. Yeah, that that in and of itself is is compelling, right? You mm-hmm. have two brothers, so so the movie lays it out this way: you have two brothers, um, both the son of a mighty man who loves who loves and prefers one over the other another thing that you get in the extended edition that's i think is interesting is that the brothers boromir and faramir are aware of this and boromir um like he uh, he he, i don't want to be careful with my words here he doesn't like rebel against his father but he he sort of calls him out on the way that he's showing favorites Mm -hmm. and loves his brother Right, yeah. loves Faramir. Um, so the brothers themselves are close. The father, because Denethor shows favorites, it doesn't seem to affect their relationship mm-hmm. significantly. Well, the older uh, brothers almost protect yeah, the younger brother from the father's, uh, not abuse, but yeah. um, mismanagement, mismanagement of the house. Of the house. Yeah, yeah that definitely. And so they love each other, and um, uh, which, again, is super compelling. Um, and so, and the, so the way the movie sets it up is, I think, what you're supposed to take from it is that Boromir and Faramir are faced with the same temptation, but where Boromir falls, Faramir overcomes. Right. Um, although not at first. Right. Right. So there's a struggle. I agree with you. He's conflicted. Mm-hmm. Right. There's definitely conflict. Um, and uh, he, where Boromir falls, Faramir overcomes is is the idea and so faramir set up as a sort of a um a recapitulation of the temptation of boromir but but he's answering the hypothetical question what if boromir had overcome Mm. right that's a question that you might be led to ask when you get to the end of the fellowship and faramir is the answer to that question that's that's what the movie's doing it's saying here's what here's what would have happened Mm -hmm. if boromir had overcome he would have let frodo go then he would have returned to Gondor, and he would have fought for his city, and you know, tried to give his. Would have life. been nice to have him. He yeah, would have been a useful. Sure, you know, sure. I mean, Denethor, Denethor tells us that Boromir is the one who held the defenses of Osgiliath intact for for you know forever, yeah. and so um, that's that's the way that the movie sets it up, and that in and of itself, like I said, can be compelling. But now let's contrast that with the book. So when Faramir is introduced to us in the book, Frodo and Sam and Gollum are moving through Athelion, like you mentioned, and when Faramir. Um, comes upon them he's cautious very cautious his life mm-hmm. has caused him to be cautious but you meet you almost immediately i don't want to say immediately but almost immediately you learn that he's much more wise and crafty and subtle mm-hmm. in his speech craft than he lets on yeah and that he's actually much more discerning mm-hmm. of what's happening than he than he allows than he shows in his initial um, conversation mm-hmm. and that he's very much interested in helping Frodo. Yeah. Even though at first it doesn't seem like it. This is some more of there's a few characters in these books that that you'll encounter as you read. And it, it it's almost like low grade magic is at work. Um which you can you can see you know Faramir is it's revealed to us that he was tutored by Gandalf. Right. Now we don't know what that means exactly because not you can't become a wizard. A wizard's like almost like a race of its own, right? Um, but there are people who can wield certain kinds of of magics, and there may be you know perhaps uh, Faramir's merely been taught how to observe better. But um, 
or or this could be kind of more of Tolkien referring to like this is a superior bloodline, and they have not exactly superpowers, but they're just more perceptive. They're a little bit more quick-witted. Yeah. They just can kind of sniff things out a little better than than we like normal people can do. I did want to comment on that because Faramir himself, when he's talking to Frodo about Boromir in the books, this is not in the movies, but in the books, he's talking to Frodo about his brother, and he makes the comment that Boromir. Even though he's the firstborn of Denethor, mm-hmm. is much more like a Rohirrim, yeah, than he is a Gondorian, mm-hmm. right? That the Rohirrim, like culturally, yes, yeah. like he just that's it's in his blood, mm-hmm. right? Like he's he's and he, and actually it's interesting. I'm I'm almost positive I I haven't read the Return of the King and or the Two Towers of Return of the King since last year, this time last year, but I'll be reading it again very soon. But I'm almost positive that Boromir's described as having golden hair. And mm-hmm. um, like fair skin, okay. but Boromir. I, that, but. I think Boromir has dark hair. I don't think he does in the movies, but I think he actually does in the book. I don't remember exactly. Faramir, you mean? Yeah, Faramir. Um, yeah, well, Faramir. I can't remember who it's. Disc- we should have reread it. I guess I don't know, but um, it, it, it's talking about how like uh, Faramir's reminiscent of Aragorn. Right, that's He's the very idea. Tall, very yes. dark, looks like a stereotypical Gondorian. Yes, that's the but idea. But not just a regular Gondorian. Right. A high-born a Numen- Gondorian. Like, he's got Numenorian in him yeah. in a way that Boromir didn't get. Like, yeah. it's, like again, it's very subtle. Uh-huh. It's very, like, he, Tolkien doesn't come out and say, like, this is the way it is. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Bilbo and Frodo's ancestry. Yes. has rumor yes. of... Fey creatures right. being involved. Like right. there's 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 just a teeny bit of magic blood running through those veins. And the effect of that isn't spelled out necessarily. Right. But it's like an X factor that could come into play whenever Tolkien kind of wants it to. Sure. So Faramir is is in that he's got that and, and Boromir doesn't have it. And mm-hmm. so it, it Faramir talks like Boromir was much more at home in the mead halls of Rohan mm-hmm. than he was in the high vaulted halls of Gondor. Mm-hmm. Right? Um he he had no interest in being a wizard's pupil. He wanted to be uh like if if you could compare him to another character, Boromir is much more like Aomer. Than he yeah. is like Faramir or mm-hmm. Aragorn. It's like a Jacob and Esau situation. Yeah, very much, very much. And so, um, so when we meet Faramir, we're immediately reminded um, in his demeanor, in his appearance, in his tact uh, of Aragorn, mm-hmm. specifically like Aragorn and Bree, yeah. right? Like yeah. the Aragorn and Bree Strider, uh, Strider mm-hmm. uh, as he's first introduced to us, you immediately know as a reader there's a lot more to this guy than meets the eye, mm-hmm. and you're not entirely sure what's going on there, yeah. but he's. He knows more than he should. Mm-hmm. He speaks. He with seems tact. to be concealing. Yes. Yeah. And, and and in a way that like there's a there's a veiled wisdom that the book then spends another <laughs> thousand pages mm-hmm. revealing to yeah. us, right? Until we were like, oh, he's the king. That's what we. That's what was hidden to, from us, mm-hmm. right? And when we first meet him, and and Faramir's got a similar thing going on. Um, but in the books, he immediately when when he when he discerns what Frodo and Sam are about. He, there's no question for mm-hmm. him. He immediately um, uh, chooses to help them. In fact, he has a quote um, that in the movies he says to his father, mm-hmm. but in the books he says to Frodo. Yeah. And because uh, when Frodo realizes, it's actually Sam kind of spills the beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Frodo <coughs> realizes that Faramir's sort of caught on to what's going on, Faramir looks at him and says, um, "I wouldn't, I wouldn't take this thing up if it were on the roadside." Mm-hmm. Um, and or if Gondor were in flames, and I alone could save her, yeah. right? Um, that that Faramir immediately recognizes it's this is too big for me, 
Yeah. Right. My my um, duty is to exist within my station and mm-hmm. not to overreach my station, mm-hmm. um, which plays, which is massive. So yeah. so when you look at that in the context of the ring, it's very easy to say, okay, Faramir's overcoming where Boromir fell. Mm-hmm. That that comparison's easy and that's fine. Sure. But it, it it's more than that. Because when Aragorn returns mm-hmm. in Return of the King, and now we're skipping ahead uh, to, to, to the end of the story, but when Aragorn returns, Denethor has killed himself. Yeah. Um, he's, he's lit himself. Which means Faramir's the steward. Which means Faramir's the current steward of the city. Mm-hmm. And by rights, it's current ruler. Yeah. And when Aragorn comes, and I have, I have the quote, because Faramir, Faramir is, um, he's injured pretty badly, and he's in the Houses of Healing, and Aragorn is the king who comes bearing the sword mm-hmm. um, that is a, a symbol of his power and authority, but he's also comes with the hands of healing, right. which is which, which is, is the prophecy, the prophecy yeah. uh, that uh, fulfilled that he's the returning king. And so when he comes in, he heals Faramir. When Faramir comes awake, it's a very simple quote, but he says, My lord, you called, I come. What does the king command? Mm-hmm. It's it's the same thing going on here. Yeah. He immediately recognizes his station and doesn't overreach. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Aragorn is v- very careful that you, you don't get this in the movies because you got to kind of skip past this stuff. But in the books, you get to watch Aragorn be very careful and tactful about how he assumes the throne. Yeah, he's he's patient and um, and does it rightly yeah. so that the people accept what's mm-hmm. happening and they understand what's happening. And mm-hmm. he, he doesn't for invitation. He doesn't come in as a conquering king, yeah. right? He comes in as the king returning yeah. to his own. Right? There's a reason why it's called Return of the King and not you know the conquering Con- king. Yeah. Right? And so. Um, and Faramir is instrumental in that. He immediately mm-hmm. recognizes Aragorn for who he is, submits to his authority. No. That's who Faramir is. He understands his place. He's a good steward. And he's a good steward, yeah. right. Even and, though he's only a steward for, you know, a couple of days, I guess. And even that, he's but mostly laid up <laughs> right. in the hospital. Right. Um, and so, so you say, okay, what's the big deal, right? Generally speaking, we have the same thing in Faramir from the movies. He... he j- he technically, although it takes him a little while to get there, he overcomes where Boromir falls. We we get that from from the book. Um, he also submits to Aragorn's kingship without any issues. Yeah. Right. So what's the big deal? They're they're about the same. Well, they barely interact in the, in the original cut of the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't remember anything that they actually say to each other. Yeah. Directly. There's 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 not really not much more in the extendeds either. Because he he kind of goes out and gets hurt, and. You know, before Aragorn, Aragorn shows up, and right? Then, and then the next time you see him might be the coronation. It is in the original cut. In the original cut, and it's just him standing next to Eowyn. Yeah. Um, and you're you like, m- oh look, he's alive. Yes. That's kind of the point of that. And then, okay, great. You're yeah. Right. And it is. This is, I think, a massive missed opportunity mm-hmm. for the filmmakers to explore what I think Tolkien has. There's a there's a thing that Tolkien has in mind here. Boromir is who we are mm-hmm. in a sinful fallen state. Okay. Aragorn is who we cannot be. Right. Right. We, we we're can't, not the king. We're not yeah. the king. Faramir is who we're supposed to be. Okay. Right? So Boromir, Boromir is, is, the, is the fallen man. Mm-hmm. Aragorn is the one we cannot be. But Faramir's who we ought to strive to be. I I really think that that's Tolkien has something like that in mind. That's a really good. Yeah. Um, and the movies you don't get that because you you never see there's there's you, you get at the end of the two towers you get Faramir sort of making the right decision, but he's he does it, you know, 
he does it in a way that's forced antithetical to his character we don't get the wisdom we don't get the discernment we don't get to appreciate the differences in these two boys growing up under their father you know and and coming to different conclusions about the world and how it works there's a there's a lot that's there um where faramir um he's a static character in the books yeah right he's pretty static yeah um he's a complete man when you meet him yeah and that's i think that's this is a really good example of you know, can static be interesting? Absolutely. Faramir's, Faramir's quintessential to the text. Um, I, think, a, I think he's done dirty. I guess that's really what I'm trying to get at here. Is yeah. I think he's done dirty in the films. He's shown a little weaker than he ought to be. Yeah, shown. They, right. they, they, they take his character and they reduce him in a way that I think is unfortunate. It gives, gives people the wrong understanding of who Faramir is. You know, he almost, about. in the movie version, you mentioned, like, what does it look like for Boromir to make the right choice? Well, in the Fellowship of the Ring, right before the the action set piece at Amon Hen, which is at the very end of the movie, right. you have the, the scene where uh, Baromir tries to take the ring. Frodo escapes from him. He encounters Aragorn in the next scene, who he offers the ring, and it's like, but he doesn't really say you can have this, but he holds it out in a way that is very vulnerable. Right. And Frodo knows what he's doing, um, and Aragorn rejects taking it from him right so that has kind of been done sure um, that's and, a good point and uh but then faramir shows up and i think the place where the uh, missed opportunity wise we have characters who are conflicted who are torn we have one who makes the wrong decision one who makes the right decision but we don't have somebody who is who, who approaches the ring with a settled resolve to reject it and do the right thing and Faramir could have been that. Like, I can't think of anybody else who's like, oh, you have the ring? Don't worry, I'm going to help because I hate Sauron. Right. Blaz. Right. Um, and and my my duty is to, to do this thing. Sure. Um, I mean, Galadriel, we don't even, right? Yeah. And that's good. Like, she's supposed to be tested the way that she's yeah, yeah. in the movies. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good that, thing. That's appropriate for right. her. Yeah. But, but um, it's, you know, this also goes back to what we were talking about with Aragorn in the previous podcast episode, which is that they, cho- they choose a different way of portraying Aragorn, a conflicted, Byronic hero who sort Mm. of self-actualizes into who we need him to be. That's not who he is in the book. Yeah. But but Aragorn's inaccessible in the book. And he's 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 supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That's we want him to be. Yeah. He's the king. That's 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 who he's supposed to be. Um he's a he is a figure that, you know, Aumer captures it greatly when he says, Do legends spring up out of the grass? You know? Yes, Aragorn is is a, a king you know, head and shoulders above the rest of us. Faramir is not. Mm-hmm. He is accessible. He's like us. Yeah. He's got a, like you said, he's got a little bit of that Numenorean in him, mm-hmm. but he's not so distant from us that he's like an elvish king. The sure. way that Aragorn yeah. is, is he's or almost just a regular elf. Like he's, he's relatable. He's a man. He's a man. He's, yeah. he's just, he, you know, and, and he's a man. It, the decision that he makes, it's so, it's beautifully simple, uh-huh. right? I don't know. What the right decision? I don't. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I don't know what the end is. I don't. I don't. I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I just know what the right thing is. I'm just yeah. going to do the right thing, and yeah. I'm just going to keep doing the let right the thing. Let the chips fall where yeah. they may. Yeah. Let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't have the. He has enough wisdom to do what is right. He doesn't have the power or the clout to know that in doing this right thing, everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He doesn't have that. The way yeah. that Aragorn and Gandalf all he can do is is do what he knows is right. Yeah. 
and that it's it's great. It's what a fantastic. life lesson. What a yeah. life lesson. He's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But we don't get that in the movies. I mean, if you're if, if there's so many comparisons, like if you're a person who who's out on social media and you get black pilled all the time because you just see how bad everything is, this is a this is the character for you. Sure. All you can do, you cannot save the world. You cannot save the country. You cannot save the state. You by yourself cannot even save your neighborhood. All you can do is the right thing. Right. And and have faith in the Lord, you know. Absolutely. And in his provision and his protection. And uh, you know, in in Tolkien's applicability standard applies here where this is a character that we should all learn from and just see I'm not a king. I'm not a great and maybe I don't know, maybe you're out there listening and you're a king. I don't know. But um uh, you know, I personally am not. I can't save any any countries or the, or the world or undo evil or any of that sure. stuff. All I can do is do what's right in in the in the the decisions that I get to make in a day to day basis. And and all of that in submission to the one who can, right? right? Like that's that's a big part of Faramir that is really missed in the in the movie, mm-hmm. right? And 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 this is this rubs people the wrong way mm-hmm. in our current cultural moment. But Faramir knows who he is and who he's not. Yeah. Right. I am a man. I have this much authority. I have no more and I have no less. Yeah. My job is to do the right thing with the authority that I have and not to overreach mm-hmm. my station. Um and and we live in a in a cultural context that that essentially says you are a god. You right? have no like higher you, authority. You have no higher authority. You mm-hmm. you you answer to yourself and to yourself alone. Mm-hmm. And and so it is impossible to overreach your station because wherever you reach, yeah. that is your station, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it smacks that right in the face. Yeah. Right? Faramir, he's just a man out there doing what's right. Mm-hmm. And again, you, 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 there's enough of that retained in the films that I don't think it's an egregious error the way I think some of the other things we're going to talk about mm-hmm. are. But I do think it's a massive mispr- missed opportunity. Sure. Right? We, we miss the simple i think maybe to be fair to the films maybe that's what sam is supposed to be for us he's okay. just the simple okay. gardener yeah, yeah. who's kind of just doing the right thing mm-hmm. right I, sam kind of fills that role for mm-hmm. us i there's guess there's no moment in the movie where i where sam is tempted to take the ring well there is in the movies i'm, um, I'm trying to remember when so in kirith on gaul when he's giving the ring back to frodo he hesitates oh, that's it's a very very small moment. but that's it that's it and that well that rings true in the books there's there's a moment in the yeah. books where he he hesitates uh, uh, it's a he has like a vision of and sam is a conquering hero yeah planting gardens like, all around the world and it's like almost distasteful to him yeah it's like the ring doesn't get hobbits yeah you know um well anyway, can't, we'll, can't, get, we'll get around to that yeah but, i can't tempt them in the right way but mm-hmm. yeah i to um to put a bow on faramir um i think what they do to faramir is unfortunate and it's wrong. A, i think it's a case of like they good better best and they did they did good yeah and and they and tolkien did best yeah right and i don't know why you wouldn't i don't feel like time like I don't feel like oh well, there's not time to develop that. Like I don't think that would have been that difficult. To yeah, do. actually, I think it takes longer yeah. to have him fall and then overcome mm-hmm. is longer than to just have him do what's right. Yeah, you could do that in like two scenes. Yeah, um, and they could be well crafted scenes, and then he could you know reappear later and kind of demonstrate to us that oh okay, like he the reason why he took that action is because he's loyal to the king, whether the king is here or not. Yeah, and, and now that the king is here. 
we can see that like yeah he's the same man when there's no king on the throne as he is when there is a king on the throne right and he's going to do take the same action he's going to do the same thing sure it's like the faithful steward yeah i mean like the parable of christ like and you know he literally is the steward of yeah. course but um sure. it just because the king isn't here doesn't mean he gets to shirk his duties that's that's well said. there's a there's another piece to this um that that is uh that is true too. Um, in the in the books, you know, Fairmere. What we what we get is um, the 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 person who, uh, like you were saying, he 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 submits to the authority of the king, whether he's there or not. But he he is Fairmere is actually the one who hands him back his crown. Yeah, right? like it, mm-hmm. it is. It is a beautiful picture of submission to authority. Like you gave me, like I had this crown. I was a steward, and like you said, he's a steward for like I think it's like two weeks or something. Yeah. Not long, right? It's a very short time. And then he hands it right back to the king in the coronation ceremony, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and he's rewarded, yeah, as well, right? You know, he's essentially made a prince. He's faithful over right. over um, Athelion, the area where he was. In charge of fighting, he now gets to go back and 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 be a gardener. <laughs> yeah, right. Cultivate, mm-hmm. cultivate good things. Because they're not going to have problems with orcs and trolls coming out of the hills anymore. Right. You know? And and the the creeping rot that's coming out of Mordor is going to start to recede. Yeah. So that's great. Um, well, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Think we covered fairly? Uh, I think we got it. Yeah. So let's move on to the low point of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bad, and it gets worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, we've got Eowyn. Oh, Eowyn um, is, of course, a a Rohirrim lady. She is the niece of Theoden King and the sister of Eomer, son of Eomund, who is the third <laughs> marshal of the Rittermark. Um, That's impressive. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I like uh, the Rohirrim are my favorite. Yeah, like people great. group in the in the. That's because they're Nords. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like a combination of Nords and Mongols. Yeah, kind of because they're, they're the horse. They got the horse emphasis, thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, so the the Rohirrim, of course, are the the centrally located people group. Now, if you were to travel to Middle Earth, if you could snap your fingers and transport yourself there. Ancestrally speaking, you would probably be this most similar to the Rohirrim, right? Because the, the Gondorians are descended from the people of Westerness. They're Numenorians. They're they're men, but they're like different. Yeah, they're almost like supermen, right. mildly so. The Rohirrim are more like regular people, and um, they're not culturally. They're not as as uh, profound. They're very militaristic. They're um, Viking type culture with um a similar aesthetic they did a really good job with the aesthetic for them in the movies yeah um i think they captured the the spirit of them very well um and so we're, we're talking about uh eowyn so we've got theoden king uh and he has a son who dies um in an orc battle mm-hmm. um during the during the time when theoden is, is enslaved by saruman um and uh, so he has no more children, and he is a widower, I guess, I assume. I don't think his wife is ever mentioned, but uh, he's an old man yeah. already, so I, we can assume that his wife has died. Um, and so he has a, a nephew and a niece, and I, as far as I know, those are his only family. So nephew, Eomer, war, war captain, um, will eventually assume the throne uh, at the end of the story after Theoden uh, dies in battle. Eowyn is his sister, and she's a noble lady of the house of Aeol, uh, 
um, which is the, the ruling house, the ruling clan, and um, uh, a shield maiden of Rohan. Yeah. So uh, trained in battle, uh, as uh, is implied in the movie, um, the women of Rohan were trained to fight because they uh, often found themselves defending hearth and home. It was kind of the implication that right. I got. She makes a comment about, we learned a long time ago that you don't have to have a sword to die by a sword. And so, um, you know, being a, a child of the nobility, she would have had the leisure time to study Sword swordsmanship and, and kind of the, um, the wink, uh, of like, okay, we'll let the girl play too. You get the feeling that this is very clearly a patriarchal society. They understand that there's different roles. The men go off to war. The women do not. They stay at home. They protect the home. They protect the children. They take care of things like that. Um, but they're also tough. Yeah. Um, everybody, everybody in the civilization is pretty physically tough, um, and mentally tough. So, uh, we meet her in the two towers. Yes, um, and she, of course, is uh, very concerned for her uncle. The king um, has a great love for him, not just as her uncle, but as king. Uh, you get the feeling that almost his his role as king is more valuable to her than his role as family. Yeah, um, and that there's a there's a love of his office as the as the representative of the Rohirrim people. Absolutely, um, and she rides to war um and so in the book she rides to war for a certain reason and in the movie she rides to war for a different reason <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to get into that um so i don't know where do you want to go how do you want to how do you want to get to this uh, get from point a to point well B? let me let me start with a slight disclaimer here so if you are in any way shape or form a fan of the uh, modern strong female character um you're not gonna enjoy this next twenty minutes because I'm gonna get on a soapbox and skip uh, skip to the time code. Yeah, that uh, that's on your screen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it's, uh, okay. Movie Aowen first. Movie Aowen is um, portrayed as um, a, a, a woman who is sort of veiled and trapped, caged by. Um, society and its imposition on her as a woman that she's uh, not combat ready. Now this is mitigated in the two towers because she falls in love with Aragorn. Um, this is pulled from the books. This yeah. is this is true that Lady Eowyn does um, develop um, feelings for Aragorn. Um, it's you know it's serious. It's serious in the books. Um, she can't but, help it because but, of Aragorn's kind of greatness yes he's just there's a magnetism there right and, and since she you know uh, this is one of those things where like probably every woman that he walked by right would have swooned right but this is a princess right basically like she's, like she's in his league right. kind of yeah there's there's so, an idea that like yeah it, it would not be totally outside the realm of possibility that they yeah. could be together i mean he, he's not um he but he also is larger than life and she falls in love um with him but aragorn makes it clear to her that um, what she loves is not real, mm -hmm. right? Because she doesn't really know him. She doesn't really know who he is and what he's about. Sure, um, that it's a it's a shadow and a thought that right. she loves. And so, um, in the books, um, sorry, in the movies, Eowyn falls in love with Aragorn, um, but uh, and and it seems in some moments like he's kind of returning her affection mm -hmm. um or she mistake she mistakenly believes he, he seems attracted to her yeah that and and it's sort of implied that he thinks 
Arwen, who is his love interest from the first film, has gone away. Right. Right. And so a relationship with Eowyn is on the table which was, in the film. Which was originally his advice. He was right. like, you should go. You should go. Because we may not win. And and this is it's this is you don't have to you don't have to suffer right yeah. like you, if you leave you'll you'll Live be in a place yeah. of no, with no suffering, and so you know he's trying to make a noble sacrifice here, and Arwen tells him no, uh, but he thinks that she's gone away. That's what he tells Eowyn anyway, and uh, so relationship seems to be kind of so through this Eowyn thinks of relationships on the table, and then um, in Return of the King. Um, the movie, Aragorn receives uh, his sword from Elrond, which in the books he got a long time ago. Uh, but in the movie, he gets he finally gets his sword and is basically told that his the war with Sauron is now not just a war for the freedom of Middle Earth, but it is a war for the for the life of Arwen. That mm-hmm. her life is her life force is bound to the destruction of the ring in a yeah. way that is super unclear. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's no... There's no reason for it. Yeah, there's <laughs> no, no reason given. given. Uh, elves, are, elves are, are so mysterious and strange in the movies, um, which they undid a little bit with the Hobbit trilogy, if yeah. you care to watch those. They, they, they're if a little, you love yourself, you won't. They're a little more down to earth in those. Um, but in the movies, there's strange magic that... Uh, affects different elves different ways and and it's not always clear about why or what the reasoning is but essentially what it's saying is that the more powerful sauron becomes the more she's dying yeah um and uh if he if she gets the or if uh, they lose the ring then she's gonna die which seems like a moot point because everyone else is gonna also die um or or be enslaved right you know so uh, you know whatever <laughs> what's in for a penny in for a pound you know i guess that's great so it's, th- it's, it's almost like oh uh, okay it's a way to make the now stakes that, personal now that you've told me that i care yeah. you know like he has done already for two movies right. you know like right. i think we're i think we're good on the stakes being pretty high right um, yeah it doesn't get much worse than it could the maybe, fate of the free world uh, maybe there's like a maybe there's a ticking clock uh, that they're trying to put on him or something like it doesn't i don't know yeah whatever. yeah i mean i do think sense of well it is so within the immediate context of the film it caused him to go down the paths of the dead yeah right um so i do think it's a ticking desperate clock measures idea. yeah are desperate necessary. times desperate measures i do think that's the idea yeah. and, it, and it's that's fine yeah sure um, like you said we don't really need to raise the stakes the stakes were as high as they could get yeah right she's gonna die no matter what yeah. um but anyway back to Eowyn. so in the movies Eowyn, through the two towers thinks like okay this is a guy I can I can see myself with he's he's great he's honorable he's mighty um, he he checks all the boxes he's attractive whatever and Six figure uh, income yes <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, that's right and so uh, she, she falls in love Aragorn realizes Arwen hasn't gone away and so now he tells Eowyn uh, uh, thanks but thanks but no thanks this friend, is a, friend zone yeah uh and says you know it's a shadow and i thought that you love and so eowyn becomes um very much uh depressed um by this and so um in her sadness she goes to theoden and, and theoden you know sort of tells her like you're the last defense right like we're going mm-hmm. off to war we're gonna go try to save gondor and you need to stay behind yeah you're in charge of the. You're in charge of mounting the defense. Yes. Hold out as long as you yeah. can. Yeah, you're. You're the. You're. The, you're the one that people will look to for strength when yeah. I'm, if 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 this goes badly. Yeah. And the, and there's very good reason to believe that it will go yeah. badly. They feel right? like it's a suicide. It's mission. a suicide mission. Yeah. And so he, you know, when he's telling her this, and you know, just so the listening audience is clear, like this isn't like you know, just in case, this is like you're gonna have to do this. Yeah. Right. That's that's the idea. Somebody's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. And it's you're, gotta be you're trustworthy. And. 
so so that happens, but then we have a pivot uh, where we go to Mary, um, who's going to be left behind because he's his pony that he rides can't keep up with the yeah. Rohirrim horses, which are the greatest in all of Middle Earth. Yeah, and and they've got several days rides. So yes, it's not the kind of thing where he could just kind of hang in the rear. Like right. he would be left behind and get lost. He would get left behind and yeah, probably die on the road. And um. He's also he can't he's too heavy to be born because they're they're riding fast. Yeah, they're, right, sure. Great need presses them, and so he can't be born on. He can't just hop on the back of another right. horse because Tire out another horse. You, you know that horse is gonna not be able to bear his weight plus the weight of a of a man, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. where, where I'm going, um, won't be able to handle the weight of him plus a full grown Rohirrim soldier. No, that's interesting with armor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, so. Um, you know, Mary's getting left behind, and before he's left behind, um, there's a conversation that takes place between Eowyn and Eomer, where Eowyn essentially says, why should Mary get left behind? Mm-hmm. Well, he should have every right to defend the people he loves, right? Um, and and it's very clear mm-hmm. that she's talking about herself, sure. right? That that she's using Mary as a pretext to talk about herself. And Eomer, it's also, I think, very clear in the in the scene because it's acted very well mm-hmm. um that aomer picks up on it yeah and There's starts knowing glances. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so he knows that aowen's no longer talking about mary she's ta- talking about herself mm-hmm. and aomer makes it very clear um that war is the province of men sure that, that this is not a thing yeah. um, I mean, his comment if i remember right is it's not his heart that i doubt it's the reach of his right. sword it's arm. the reach which, of his arm which is is kind of a joke but the the truth of the matter is like we don't think he will be effective in combat. Right. Because he's half the size of a grown man. Right. And Eowyn is half the size <laughs> right. of a grown man. Right. The actress weighs 100 pounds. Right. You know? Which is so, great. That's yeah. that. I think in the books, it, I, I don't remember specifically, but I think it's a, it's it's sort of understood that she's young. That she's yeah, like yeah. she's not she's not a child. Yeah. But she's also it's like she's young. Or right? 18, yeah, 18, Yeah. You know, like um, so because there is some sort of like childish fancy that's involved yeah there's a naive there's a naivete uh, that's there but anyway so aomir tells her this and it's very clear that aowen is is um not she's she's not having it and so um fast forward mary's getting left behind the riders moving out all of a sudden an arm drops down picks him up puts him on a horse and it's aowen it's mm-hmm. very clear from the beginning that it's Awen in disguise. In disguise as a Rohirrim rider, and she says, "Ride with me." Now, a couple of things here. Awen, um, her motivation in the movies seems to me to be very clear that she is riding because she believes that it is her her right and her duty to defend the people that she loves. Yeah, and she it is wrong for her to be left behind. Right. So I'm going to disobey the order of my king. Yeah. In order to um, do what I believe to be right, and um, this is again the two pieces of evidence that I would point to in the films to support this. The first is the conversation that we've already talked about. The second is when they're all lined up and Theoden is sort of challenging them to ride to to wrath and to ruin into mm-hmm. the red dawn ere the sun rises. What an incredible scene! Yeah, um, it's awesome in the maybe books my, too. Maybe my favorite. Scene. It's awesome in the books too. Yeah. Um, you know, she tells Mary, like, have courage. Have courage for our friends. Mm-hmm. Like, like we're we are here to do a thing. Take yeah. courage, right? Like, it's, it's, she's, it's, I don't want to say optim- optimistic is not the right word, but it's not, 
pessimistic. It's right. not nihilistic. It's not the fatalism uh, right. of the others. Of, right. And so, which is important. Yeah. So, okay. Listener. Recap. Eowyn, motivated by duty, a sense of honor, and she's shirking the or, the direct order of her king because she believes that it is her right yeah, to be I, there. I mean, her, her motivation is, is plainly selfish. Yes. It is all about asserting my I right to. Mm-hmm. to do this thing. Mm-hmm. I It is wrong for you, Eomer, and it is wrong for you, Theoden, to tell me to stay behind. You have no right to tell me to stay behind. Mm-hmm. This is what I should be doing. This is what I'm going to do. And it seems, the movie, seems to suggest that she is correct because when Theoden is being killed by the Witch King, mm-hmm. she shows up and um, is able to kill the witch king mm-hmm. because of a loophole yeah. in, which is this, <laughs> a prophetic loophole, a prophetic loophole yeah. which says no living man can kill the witch king uh-huh. and she's not a living man she's a woman and yeah. so she can kill the witch king which is clever sure you know because it's very witch- shakespearean yeah. right I, I get macbeth vibes from yeah, that every yeah. time i read it right yeah, when um, uh, yeah. burnham wood comes to dunsany <laughs> right. and stuff yeah, yeah. all that um, and so you know no man more of woman it's like ah I had, my mom had a c-section be like okay nice loophole there yeah thanks thanks willie nice try dude <laughs> um so you know so that's and that's clear what tolkien's going for because that is in the books yeah and so you know she has a very dramatic moment she rips her helmet off i am no man stabs the witch king kills the witch king Slick mary king. helps her that's important girl boss moment. um yeah very much girl power stabs i am no man st- kills the witch king has a very touching moment where theoden passes and um and and then you know scene and then yeah. and then if you're watching the extended editions this was not in the theatrical cut if you're watching the extended editions you do get a little bit of her you get one shot of her in the houses of healing where she's standing next to faramir and oh look like consolation prize for the hero of the mm. of the battle of he the kind of fields. Like Aragorn. yeah like you should this, date him this will work and then and then the next time you see her is at the coronation yeah that's done and so the only conclusion that you can come to when watching the films with eowyn is that her character arc is caged woman trapped by the ideals of her of her society and locked into a social caste system overcomes in order to to self-actualize and become a dominant um, person on the battlefield, you know, showing, proving that the the men were wrong, mm-hmm. right? That she belonged there. In fact, she was the only one capable of doing the thing. Yeah. Right. And in so doing, saves the day. The Witch King is a is a terrific foe. Sure. That no one else could have overcome. Well, if anyone doesn't, well, one person could have. Right. Well, we'll come. Around we'll get. That. We'll come yeah. around to that. Right. But in the movies, sure. the, the movies don't allow for that. They, Remember, in the movies, Gandalf faces the Witch King in, oh, yeah. and loses. Mm. Right. Um, so the movies set it up that no one yeah. could have defeated the Witch King other than Eowyn. Yeah. And if she doesn't defy her king and do what she believes to be right in her heart, very Disney, mm-hmm. right? Like, follow your heart. Very Disney princess. Right, very Disney yeah. princess. If she doesn't do that, the battle's lost. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's talk about the book. I have a problem with that. <laughs> <sighs> okay. In the books... Let's just, okay, let's just cut the crap. <laughs> the book is the opposite of everything we just said. It really is. The character arc is, moves from rebellious teenager to dutiful subject and, you know, 
let's let's get into the details. That's of that, that's you know? great. Um, yes. So in the books, here's what's the same. What's the same is Eowyn falls in love with Aragorn. That's the same. Uh, Eowyn uh, is hurt by his rejection. That's the same. She does go to war, despite the fact that the king tells her not to. That's the same. And she does kill the witch king. That is the same. Nothing else is the same. <laughs> okay, so those <laughs> things are the same. Nothing uh, else is the same. So, why does she go to war? Let's start there. Um, there is no conversation between he, her and Aramir about those, those, the reach of Mary's sword arm. There's no implication that um, she... Uh, w- uh, wants to go to war now, or, or or there's no implication. There's there's no idea. There's no there's none of that sort of subtle innuendo conversation, right? Now, I will say in the Houses of Healing, Gandalf does say that she's she felt trapped. Sure, right? Like he talks about her feeling trapped, mm-hmm. right? But what he's when he's talking about that, he's not talking about it in a way that you're supposed to think. Oh, poor Eowyn. Yeah. She felt trapped. He's saying, no, like this is what caused her and what motivated her. She had all of your desire for valor, but none of the opportunity to experience it. Mm-hmm. And that's that caused her to to act inappropriately. Right. right? Like he's just diag- it's a diagnosis. Sure. It's it's not a praise. She has the ancestral uh qualities right. of the Rohirrim people. Right. Of, of the House of Aeoral. Yeah. yeah. They they have a, a militant ethos that like we believe and there's there's this is not necessarily something you would want to imitate in real life because this leads to to you know problems but human uh, excellence can be well portrayed in a militarized setting now if you live in middle earth and there's orcs and monsters running around that's a more valid (laughs) than if you live in our world where the only things that you can fight against are other people right and um and so you go raiding and pillaging other countries because you think like you're you're like a um World War One era Germany or or Attila the Hun or you're just trying to conquer and, and dominate and stuff like that and then that's not good but in in Tolkien's Middle Earth the Rohirrim they even the the lower classes can um, attain virtue in the eyes of others through victory like right through military and and dying in battle and um you know just Mm. the same way that you think of dying in battle more on that in a second it's the same way you think of viking culture where there's a fatalism there's a and there's an acceptance that life is short and brutal and dead and deadly and nobody gets out alive and but there's also at the same time a um a vibrance uh, because death is a constant companion. They live fully yep. uh, in their lives. They, they drink deeply. They eat, they feast mightily. They, these are the kind of people who would have a contest to see who could eat the most pork or right. something. You know what I mean? Like, sure. um, and so uh, it's a really likable bunch, but they're not without, they're not without flaw, but she has all these things right. in Born, and she's not merely any Rohirrim. She's noble right. Rohirrim, so she's got them in extra in space. loads. Right. So you've got somebody who is raised in a culture that values these things. She wants those things yeah. for herself, and she has not yet figured out the best way to attain them. So she does what the boys do. Right. So fast forward. So that's great. Um, all of that's great, and and so. Um, Aragorn rejects her. Now, 
her motivation, her primary motivation for going to battle is to die. Yeah, she's like suicidal. She wants to die. Yeah. I want to be very clear about that to the listening mm-hmm. audience. In the movies, it's it's all hope and it's all yeah, yeah. noble, mm-hmm. right? Like, I want to go to fight for those I love. Yeah. That's not why Dernhelm, which is the name that she adopts. Mm-hmm. She, it's not why Dernhelm goes to fight. Dernhelm goes to fight because Dernhelm wants to die. Yeah. And Dernhelm wants to die in a very specific kind of way. Mm-hmm. She is exactly what you were just talking about. The, her culture glorifies death in combat. Mm-hmm. And so this is because Aragorn has rejected me, and that is why. Yeah. Right? Which is childish. Right? It is. It is, yeah. it, it, that's, it is now, I'm sympathetic, mm-hmm. but it's childish. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Aragorn has rejected me, I want to, there's, I, there's no glory and there's no honor. So I want to die mm-hmm. in combat because that's what my culture tells me is the greatest thing and men get to do it and I should be able to do it too. Mm-hmm. It is straight rebellion. Yeah. And it is it is it is self-destructive and nihilistic. Yeah. Right? And and now what she does not lose even in this self-destructive behavior is a love for Theoden. Sure. Um she loves Theoden. Yeah. And so what you get and it's really Tolkien's good is that she's constantly in the in the marshalling and in the marching mm-hmm. she's constantly inching her way because she's not riding as lady eowyn right she has no business being around the king yeah but she's like maneuvering herself yeah she's so that she's close a, to theoden a, like a foot soldier right and so like and, and mary picks up on it like he's like yeah we're moving closer to theoden and he's mm-hmm. sort of an, just a passing thought but that's how we get wind of it as we're reading mm-hmm. and so when the com when the fighting starts she's she's kind of close to theoden's banner bearer mm-hmm. and that's why she's able to kill the witch king now um she does kill the witch king yeah right she 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 does a thing but before she kills the witch king mm-hmm. in the books something very different happens yeah gandalf who is who has taken over the defense of the city because denethor has gone mad yeah uh is is um riding shadowfax the horse the lord of all horses and he's going to the gates of the city yeah and he's going to face the witch king yes that's the idea and uh, the Witch King arrives, and they have a little conversation, mm-hmm. and then suddenly the horns of the Rohirrim blow, yeah. which causes the Witch King to doubt his position of security, Right, and at the same moment, Pippin shows up saying that Denethor is trying to kill, trying Faramir. To kill Faramir, Yeah, right? And so Gandalf has an impossible choice. Yeah. The Witch King um, vanishes using magic. And Gandalf has an impossible choice. Do I go after the Witch King, mm-hmm. which is what I probably should do, yeah. or do I go save the life of Faramir, yeah. which is what I probably, which is, you know, I shouldn't say should. It, it's an impossible choice. Yeah, yeah. They're, both, they're mm-hmm. both right. And Gandalf chooses to go save Faramir. And he, and he even comments. Yes. There will yes, be he does. bad things This is happen. not, yeah, everything has turned to ruin. You know, luck has, my, you know, luck has, you know, sort of abandoned me. I'm, I'm, he doesn't use those words. I'm sort of, putting those words in his mouth but the idea is that like this is bad there will be dire consequences for this choice mm-hmm. but he goes to save faramir and it's denethor's fault yeah and it, it is absolutely denethor's fault so he goes to save faramir and what gandalf is sort of portending there is the death of theoden yes. that's the cost yeah. theoden dies because right? the witch king because kills the, him the witch king and hears he would the have horns. either been destroyed or at least occupied right by some kind of battle with the gandalf correct yeah. yeah but after the death of the witch king by eowyn which he's able to do, Gandalf tells us that it's a thing that should not have happened. Yeah. He tells us that. 
Mm-hmm. He tells us that this is not how this should have gone down. Eowyn mm-hmm. should never have been in the position to have to kill the Witch King. I should have fought him, mm-hmm. and it would have been a nasty combat. Yeah. But Gandalf's pretty confident that he would have won, or at least that he should yeah. have been the he, one to he do seemed, the fight. He seemed to be uh, pretty sure, like, I'm the one who's meant to, to this deal is, with him. Yeah, this is what And that would have also fulfilled the prophecy, because you have to remember that Gandalf is not actually a man. He's right. disguised as a man. Right. And so when it says no living man can kill me, well, that that excludes a number of things. I mean, technically speaking, if you want to get real literal, you could say an elf or a dwarf or an orc. Or, well, Mary's able to stab him, sure, right, and a deal hobbit. damage. Yeah, so so it doesn't. It, it's not really clear on what the we don't get, the the movie doesn't shed a lot of light on the prophecy, and I don't really think that the book, the book doesn't says really a ton about it yeah. either. It's just that they know that the witch king won't be killed. Somebody I can't remember who gave the prophecy in, initially. Maybe the Witch King himself discovered it through some sort of dark magic, but he had this vague, and he, of course he interpreted it to say, I cannot be killed. Right. That was what he understood. It's super it Macbeth, say. right? Yeah. But that's not what the prophecy said, right? right? He didn't pay attention to the details. It's kind of like a like a Faustian thing. Right, like he, monkey paw. Kinda. Yeah, he, he didn't get it because he didn't want to get it. That's a monkey's paw, I monkey's think paw. is right, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in this case... A woman has killed him right. on the battlefield, and and Gandalf recognizes that the fact that a woman engaged him in combat and killed him was a tragedy. A tragedy. It's tra. That's the right word. Yeah. It's tragic. It should not have happened. Gandalf tells us. Mm-hmm. And again, Gandalf is sympathetic. Yeah. Right. He he's the one who sort of sheds light on. Imagine being born with all of the valor. Mm-hmm. That exists, and and the might, and the Rohirrim noble blood of Aorl. Imagine having all of that in you, and no, and not having figured out how to do that, right? Yeah. Like you, you know, if, yes. Who knows what she whispered into the darkness? It's actually the quote uh, in the the quote is in the movies somewhat, but Grima Wormtongue is actually the one who says it because yeah. it's, it's very ominous. Yeah, it's Gandalf, a great scene too. That yeah, actor's yeah, really he's, good. he's very good. Um, but in the books, it should not have happened. So you say, okay, well, what what, what are we supposed to do with that? The, the, so Eowyn, well, she's, Eowyn, she's dragged off to the house sure, of healing. Sure, right? so, so Eowyn, uh, uh, so you know, what, you say, what Eowyn is, you know, just this rebellious teenager. That's what we get. No, Tolkien doesn't leave her there. He's a masterful storyteller. She goes off to the houses of healing. Aragorn, and <laughs> a cruel twist of fate, has to be the one to save her. He's the only one who can, sure, because it's been already been established that he knows how to deal with the Nazgul's um, sickness. Yeah, that, that they can impart. Which is not really that's not really brought up in the movies much. We see it, it's kind of when Frodo is struck by the Morgul blade, and he is initially they're like, okay, he's going to turn into a wraith if we don't. St- st- stop the poison right. um he kind of stalls the poison elrond actually is the one who heals him or at least it's implied that he's healed in rivendell by the elves and then uh we we aren't the nazgul's sickness is not clearly shown their magic in the movie appears to be to basically inflict hysterical fear on normal people just by being present they're very hard to kill even though aragorn takes on five of them in the first movie by himself <laughs> Um, but, but they, you know, he doesn't kill them, right? right. He just kind of, they, they can be, the, the book talks about how their mounts can be destroyed and it's almost like, um, capture the flag where they have to go back to base to start over. Right. Um, which is what happens, uh, in the movie as well. Cause they get wiped out in the flood in, uh, the Bruin and, and right. they have to go back. And then when the next time they come out, they have uh, kind of like draconic mounts, like those dinosaur monsters. Right. Um, but uh, the Nazgul sickness is not shown, and she gets 
hurt. I'm, I'm using quotes here. She gets hurt when she stabs him, and so does uh, Mary. Mary. So she gets da- she get, her arm gets broken or damaged. It's by like yeah, the deadened. Is, I think and the then best. when Mary and her both strike, the striking arm is numb right. basically, and she just kind of get, I guess gets over it in the movies. Like it doesn't really say much about it. Um, but in the book, she's infected with a sick, a wasting illness that's going to eventually kill her. Right. If if there's not an intervention, and there's several people that this happens to. Right. Um. So, you know, they need somebody who has the hands of healing. Right. And so, um, Aragorn is the one who heals her, and when she's healed in the books, she wants to go back out and die. That she she yeah, has she wants to go fight. She wants to go fight in Mordor and die, and. You know, Faramir has been left behind because he's also injured. You know, in 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 his flight from the Pelennor, and so this is where they kind of meet and they start to converse. And Faramir says, essentially, um, you know, your duty is to stay here, and he and he kind of helps her to see, you know, what it is that she should be doing. She's still upset, but essentially, uh, there's a there's a te- a text as as she's standing in the in the house of healing in the garden with Faramir um, and this is after Sauron is defeated uh, we have this this quote that um, that captures her her termination point okay this is where Eowyn's character terminates then the heart of Eowyn changed I'm reading now from Lord of the Rings the Return of the King chapter of the Steward of the King then the heart of Eowyn changed or else at last she understood it and suddenly her winter passed and the sun shone on her I stand in Minas Anor the tower of the sun, she said, and behold, the shadow has departed. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again she looked at Faramir, no longer do I desire to be a queen. Then Faramir laughed merrily, that is well, he said, for I am not a king, yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will. Total Chad. Right. It's awesome, man. I love it. It's so great. Uh, best of all the love stories that I get to teach to my children, this one is my favorite. Um, so what happens? Eowyn is healed by the hands of the king. But what she what she's healed of is not just her physical malady. She also comes to an understanding of her role, her place, mm-hmm. right? Where does she fit? Yeah. Right? And where she fits is not on the arm of the king. Where she fits is on the arm of the steward, who knows where he fits. Yeah. Right? That's the thing. Yeah. Faramir knows yeah. where his position. We've already talked about it. Yeah. And what Eowyn doesn't understand, she comes to learn, mm-hmm. this is not my role, is not to vie with the riders nor take joy in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer and love all things that grow and are not barren. She, What she learns is what it means to be feminine. Yes. Right? She abandons... She wants to be a nurturer. She wants to be a nurturer. She wants to be a healer. And where do they go? You've already talked about it. Yeah. They go to Athelion. Yeah. Right? They go... That's where they end up. It takes a while for them... A little while for them to get there mm-hmm. because there's some political stuff that has to happen. Yeah, they got to get married. But they get married and they go off to Athelion, which is essentially a garden paradise. It's a garden yeah. kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right? They they grow flowers and fruit and fauna and uh, the idea is that she is a healer and she brings life into the world. Mm-hmm. Her and Faramir do it together. And that's where her character terminates. It is a self-admittance that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I, 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 did, I should not. This, this, that was not my place. 
that that death and glory on the battlefield is is not the thing that fulfills me because again it says then the heart of Eowyn changed or else at last she understood it mm-hmm. right and, and and you're like that's a really funny way to say it I'm like yeah it is because we don't know either it's great it's yeah. exactly did did her heart change or mm-hmm. did she just finally understand where she's supposed to be either way yeah. the, the, ultimately what Tolkien is saying is either way mm-hmm. she's She's where she's supposed to be now, right? Yeah. She's happy. She's fulfilled. She's blessed, yeah. right? And and that's where Tolkien leaves her, mm-hmm. right? That's the picture that we get of Eowyn, not this prototypical strong female character mm-hmm. whose whose worth and and termination point as a character arc is in rebellion against the social norms in order to be a strong independent female warrior mm-hmm. that's not Eowyn yeah. that's not even close to Eowyn that's her in her darkest moment mm-hmm. not in her moment of glory and triumph yeah. right I mean it, it is the movies what they do to her is unforgivably bad yeah. right it, it's a complete misunderstanding and mishandling uh, of the character because it leaves her in darkness it doesn't move her in into the glorious light that her character terminates in. Um, And it's a complete misunderstanding of femininity, masculinity, and what gives people worth. Um, Again, because we don't get Faramir right, I think that plays a part in this. Faramir's whole thing is that he knows his place. He he knows where he belongs. And he helps Eowyn to see that as well. Uh, But because we don't, Faramir doesn't know where he belongs, then you can't help Eowyn to do it either. Sure. And so, anyway, it... To me, it is egregious, and I, I hate it. I have, I, I, I used to tolerate it, mm-hmm. and as time has gone on, especially now because I have a daughter, I hate it. Mm-hmm. I hate what they do to Eowyn because it is a complete mishandling of her character. Yeah, they didn't so, get it. Yeah, or maybe they did, and, and they chose to go a different direction because they wanted to. Well, and 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 you know now as we stand in 2023, like you said, 20 years after Return of the King, we see that Eowyn, as she's portrayed in the film, is a prototypical strong female character that we have yeah. now. Right yeah. now, she's not as bad as the shaved, you know, shaved, blue-haired, mm-hmm. you know, uh, power feminista character who has who who has no feelings and no growth. Right, like mm-hmm. she at least goes through some stuff. She goes through some trials. Mm-hmm. She she's told not to, and then she go like. There's at least some some character stuff there that mm. is compelling. Now we don't even get that. Now yeah, we sure. just that where she ends is where female characters start now, yeah. and they never move from mm. that position. And so you know, I, I I hate the way that Eowyn is portrayed. Not just because I'm a fan of the books and I'm a fan of the character and it's a mishandling, but I also see it culturally as the forerunner of an even worse version of that, yeah, which is, seems sure. to be all we get these days. Yeah. And so uh, for so many reasons, it is just bad it is so yeah. bad so that's my that's my soapbox all right i don't have anything to add <laughs> because that's just very comprehensive <laughs> uh, my poor students they get that for like a whole extra hour but yeah. uh okay so let's move to the the last thing here the last thing here which is probably the most egregious yeah uh, we've sort of gone in descending order this one is my personal pet peeve yeah i, I think it's i feel strongly about this probably as you do about eowyn yeah I, I if i were to rank them even though i feel probably more strongly about eowyn on a personal level this one is probably the most egregious yeah uh, it's probably the, mo- the biggest discrepancy yeah and I don't know why. It makes very little sense to me. Um, all right. So what we're talking about is the relationship between Frodo and Sam. And really, it's the, the relationship between Frodo and Sam and Gollum. Right. And yeah. the ring. Um, all right. So 
let's talk about let's talk about how the ring affects Frodo first of all. That's because that's an important thing to sure. get. So in the movie, the ring has a very uh, strong magical effect that seems to appeal to a person's desire for power because that's what the ring is for, and it has the ability, while not totally sentient or at least it's unclear if it's sentient the ring actually has a voice actor um in the in the movies yeah. which of course you would know like if you're watching it you're like oh there's often scenes that where you know uh, frodo will put on the ring and you'll hear voices and it's unclear what it's saying but there's a guy that they had he's died since then but there's a guy that they had as the ring's voice um but it doesn't exert its will in a way that like it can't get up and roll away. You know right. what I mean? Like it has to be carried. There's limits to it, but anyone who encounters the ring is immediately um, infected with the desire to possess it and own it and hold it and control it. Um, most strongly, we see that with Gollum's character. Yeah. Um, and it affects him in the, in the movie version. At the beginning of The Return of the King, you get the background on Gollum's character from before he was Gollum he was a character called Smeagol who uh, had a brother or a friend Deagle is I, I can't remember I think he's a friend okay so they find the ring which was dropped in the river by Isildur when he took it he was killed in battle the ring slipped off his finger because one thing that it can seem to do is change size right um, and so it will it will change size to fall off of someone it doesn't want to be with and right. it can tr and you have to be careful because if you put it on and you are depending on it to keep you safe uh, you have to watch the ring because it will betray you that's awesome yeah that's often when it becomes most treacherous is yeah. when you're in most need yeah so um so you, you don't want to do that. Um, so they find it. They immediately get into a fight about it. Smeagol kills Deagle. And um, there's more detail in the book about what happens. Smeagol was not a good person before the ring came along. Um, he was not really well liked. He was kind of sneaky and weird. People didn't care for him. When he got the ring, he took to he, he wasn't a murderer immediately. Um, well, I guess he was because of Deagle, but he he didn't he wasn't like a, a serial killer. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, immediately go and start His, killing people. The big thing he did was he he spied on people, right. and he would get their secrets, and then he would kind of allude to those secrets in their presence, and and so no one trusted him. His appearance began to change. They they eventually exiled him from the place, and he moved out and went into the misty mountains and stuff like that so the, this is the effect the ring it has prolonged his life but it's like a half-life right like he's, he's sort of a, like almost a shade of himself he survives on whatever he could find to eat he eats raw fish like it's not a life that you would want even right. if you could live 500 years you would not want this life so um bilbo gets the ring has begins having a similar effect on him he becomes obsessed with it the same way Gollum was but it's not broken his mind as badly because bilbo is a good person right before the ring comes along. And on that note, just really quickly, Gandalf does tell us in The Fellowship too, and you don't get this in the movies, but you get it in the book, that the way Bilbo gets the ring is super, is significant. Yes. That Bilbo doesn't He does kill. not seize it from right. him. Yeah. It, he stumbles upon it. Yeah. And also, when he gives it away, like, he gives it away. It's not right. stolen from him. Right. Which is Pretty much, Gandalf says, essentially, that's what saves his mind. Yeah. If you were to try to force it off of Bilbo, it would break his mind. Mm -hmm. But because he... And, and and he's really not giving it away. It's like it's like an inheritance, right? So mm -hmm. there's still he still can sort of like that's how he justifies in his mind. He mm -hmm. can still kind of claim it as like a family heirloom. Right. Sildor says this as well. It'll mm -hmm. be an heirloom for my house. Um, that that's the only way that the ring can sort of 
peaceably pass hands as right. if a, if you're giving it away sure. to a but it's like still yours mm-hmm. that's the idea sorry continue so th- that's an important thing because it, the ring there's a there's a lot of of uh, uh allusions to the will of the person who's bearing the ring and the effect that the ring has because the ring has a will of its own and its will is is united to sauron's will although sauron is not aware of what's happening around the ring it's not like he can use the ring the same way you can use a palantir to like see what's going on or hear right. what's going on. Right. Um, he can sense the ring, but he cannot detect like what direction it's in necessarily. In the movie, if you put the ring on, he could immediately find you. And I, in the book, I don't think that that's quite the case. Um, it, he. The closest you come to that is Amon Hen, right? Yeah. Um, like there are two powers striving, but I agree. I don't get the immediate impression that like. Sauron will immediately find you if you put it on. Yeah, it's I mean, like Frodo a, pops it on on when he's at him and then yeah, he puts it he, on a couple times in the yeah. in the and it's it's a much bigger deal in the movies that he just he's supposed to avoid putting it on at all. Um, and if he does put it on, Sauron's eye can pretty much find him right away. And the and the ring race have like a homing device on right. it. But if he's not wearing it, they can kind of get in the vicinity. But that's about it. They just kind of have to look around when they get there. Um, so. Anyway, the rings, the rings magic is much more um, strong in the movies. It seems much more quick acting, um, much more corrosive. Yeah, Uh, there's visible corrosion on characters who uh, are affected by it negatively. Frodo begins to bear these marks as he wears it. Um, One of the cool things that I like is that um, he talks about how heavy the ring is in the book a lot and in the movie they illustrate this for you by having scars and scabs under the chain that's holding the ring yeah and um it's just and they never really say anything about it it's just they're just there so that's a that's a good way to show that so that's kind of how the ring affects people now Gollum is a slave to the ring because he devoted himself to it for so long he hates the ring but he he cannot defy the ring he cannot do anything to harm the ring um, and he's not going to permit Frodo to harm the ring. And and here's the key thing. Frodo knows that. Right. Frodo knows that. And there is, for some reason, there's a conversation in the Fellowship of the Ring where Gandalf, in the movie version, where Gandalf basically says, uh, Gollum's not done yet. There's something, he's, gonna, he's a part of this. And something, for good or bad, he's going to be involved. And... He uses a line directly from the book, but the way that it's delivered and the way that I think the movie's directed is we're meant to be, it's like it's a red herring almost to make us think that Gollum has a chance of being a good guy again. And Frodo, for some reason, the movie people chose to make this uh, an issue where Frodo fears that he's going to become like Gollum. And so he uh, has a desire to reform him. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, that is a big issue in the Two Towers and the Return of the King. Is right. that he's he's um, he ident- he he's beginning to lose his ability to identify as a Hobbit, and he's more sympathetic to Gollum, and so he begins to cleave to Gollum more so than Sam. And uh, long story short, there's there's a struggle for the loyalty of Frodo. Is he going to be friend to Sam, his steadfast companion, or is he going to adhere to Gollum, who? Uh, who who understands the burden of the ring, and in the books, again, long story short, that does not happen. It's hogwash. Yeah, there is no point 
in the books where Frodo is torn between loyalty between Sam and Gollum. He never trusts Gollum. There's times where uh, Sam and Frodo have conversations discussing how little they trust Gollum right. and how they're waiting for him to stab him in the back and they know it's coming, but they've just kind of, because of the circumstances they're in, they have to deal with it because he's the only one that can get him in. And so for some reason they chose to go that route and I hate that so much. Well, it's it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what they're go what the books do is they portray Sam as being very much a sort of young young naive hobbit who is on this quest for one reason he loves Frodo yes right I'm here because that's my master wherever he goes I go yeah right that's it he doesn't he doesn't concern himself with the with the perils and the lofty positions mm-hmm. and the ideologies and the philosophies, mm-hmm. right? Like the elves mystify him in a way that is super childlike. Yeah, sure. And Gandalf's death hits him in a way that he like writes poetry, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a very like childish, childlike yeah, it's, it's, limerick. It's kind you know? of yeah, it's a limerick. Yeah. is a good way to describe uh, it. You know it, that that's Sam, right? And um, that's why he's here. And then Frodo, in contrast, is very the quest, especially. But he's even kind of like this before the quest begins. He's first of all, he's older, right? Yeah, he's that's, like fifties. Yeah, he's like he's like in his fifties, and Sam's yeah. in his tweens. Now, yeah, a little bit on hobbits. There, if you're not aware, hobbits live a little longer than humans do. So, 120 years or so is kind of a not unusual. Well, I guess it's kind of unusual because Bilbo is very excited that he beat old Gaffer when right. he turned something toward the end of the return of the king um yeah what is that number i, I should know that number. number i guess I he has remember. his 111th birthday right. at the beginning of the fellowship and that's that's a pretty high number but a hobbit is not considered to have come of age and be like kind of off on their own until they're in their 30s right so through our our, our four hobbits well there's only five but fatty bulger gets left behind in the books even <laughs> though he's kind of one of the five core hobbits he just happens to be like the decoy um but mary pippin and sam are all in their 30s they're younger they're single they're not tied down frodo is kind of a confirmed bachelor but he's in his 50s and so they it's not like in the movie they portray them as a group of kind of bros that hang out at the bar they're equals they're social peers right but frodo is like in an upper class that's right and sam is uh you could think of sam as almost like kind of an old school english butler yeah who is a, a gentleman's gentleman and uh he's not refined but n- no hobbits are really so he fits right. th- he fits their cast well right and he is a guy whose uh existence is Devotion and duty to a master. Very similar to Faramir. Yes. Except on a much more limited scale. Right. Because, you know, we were talking about Faramir's reach. Well, Faramir's reach is, is significantly greater. He's a war captain of Gondor, son of the steward. So he has, you know, that's not nothing. Yeah. Sam is a gardener to a, a wealthy hobbit. And he takes care of other things that he needs. So he's his good friend, but he's more so, I would say he's even more so his friend I think he's more of a devoted servant. Absolutely. And he understands that a life of devoted service is a worthy life. Yes. And that that sticks in our craw a little bit. We don't like the idea of being like an underling. But, um, you know, reading Sam's character should make you rethink that. Absolutely. Because he's Um, he's the best. Quick trivia. It is 131. 
Okay. That's him okay. outliving the old two. And and that's like the record. That's the record. So that would be like a very old Hobbit. Yeah. Um, so I guess their lifespan is pretty similar. Yeah, about, about the same as yeah. ours. Um, and the ring is part of the reason why he's able to kind of reach that old right. age. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's the kind of the the, the the relationship between those two. And his devotion is, is really never in doubt. Um, he, he, in fact, chides himself later when he finds out so in the return of the king this happens in the movie and the books uh shelob the the mega spider that they have to fight when Gollum finally does pull the knife out and try to proverbially stab him in the back um leads them into shelob's cave where they they cannot escape except by the use of of sting right which is frodo's magical sword mildly magical sword um, that that can cleave through the spider's cords, but Frodo is stung by uh, Shelob's stinger, who has you know fangs and a stinger, as I guess uh, giant spiders do. Sure. And um, he is uh, put to sleep by this, and wrapped up in web and saved. Sam fights him off, or fights off, she, she, or fights her off rather, fights off Shelob using the the light that Galadriel gives them, um, which is starlight captured in a gla- uh, crystal vial and um sting as well stabs him stabs her a few times she runs off orcs come and so in order to preserve the quest sam is presented with a very difficult choice again um choice is an important thing yes. in these books yes it is but um he he has the choice of staying and fighting or or trying to maybe drag frodo into cover although it's kind of presented in a way that there's nowhere to go um or does he take the ring and try to resume the quest on his own? And so he, he, he decides to take the ring. He puts the ring on to become invisible. And then the orcs show up and they say, oh, this one's not dead. we got to find out what he's doing here. And he's kicking himself because he's like, my role was to stay with my master and I should have. Um, and then he has to mount a rescue mission, um, which uh, Tolkien mercilessly makes you wait until the third book so i can't imagine if you were like reading them as they came out you'd be like no yeah that would be awful um so at the beginning well i guess it's not the beginning of the return of the king it's book six it is um it's so it's it's halfway ish through the return of the king before you finally find out what happens which is not a short wait that's no, a pretty long no, way a lot wait. happens a lot happens in that uh, interval so um anyway all that to say um, the relationship between Sam and Frodo in the movie, for for the reason that uh, these guys said, I guess they wanted there to be tension, or or uh, I don't know, maybe they thought it would be boring to just watch them kind of walking. To and to be fair, it is the least interesting part of the movies, um, but it's some of the best parts of the book. Yeah, and uh, but they're never in doubt about who's loyal to whom and what Gollum wants. Um, I don't think that there's ever even a conversation about him potentially being reformed or like if we destroy the ring, there may be one conversation where like what happens to him if the ring is destroyed. Yeah. And Gandalf might've said something like we can try to rehabilitate him um, to paraphrase. I, I feel like I re- remember but that somewhere. I, see, I think it's, I honestly think it, it's even, I don't even give him that kind of credit. I'm, you know, just to be totally honest. I think it, they, there are a couple of times where, so at the very beginning of the story, it's the same conversation you were alluding to earlier with uh, where Gandalf says he might has he still has some role to play. Yeah. Um, Frodo says it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance, mm-hmm. and Gandalf corrects him and says yeah. it's pity that stayed his hand. Yeah. Right. Um, which is true. That's good. Yeah. And that's the beginning of Frodo be- becoming elf-like, right? Mm-hmm. Becoming wise. Yeah. Right. Um, 
they take that. Mm-hmm. Right, which is just like you don't kill a defenseless person. That's right? called murder. That's called murder. Right? Yeah. They take that and they're like, uh-huh. "Well, what if?" What Gandalf was really saying was that we should try to reform Gollum, which is not. No. And the way you know that is because when they catch Gollum, because yeah. this is in the books, it's not in the movies, but Gandalf and Aragorn go on a massive quest before the quest, yeah, sure. just to find Gollum. Mm-hmm. And when they catch him, they lock him up because yeah. he's dangerous. They give him to elves. They understand. Yeah. They send him to Mirkwood. Mm-hmm. Right, um, where where Bilbo goes in the his adventure, wood. Uh, yes. yeah, uh, uh, and so that's where they send him. They send him to King mm-hmm. Thranduil, and um, he's supposed to stay there, and he escapes, yeah. which is impressive, right? Like yes. that's yes. not he's a thing. Very crafty. That's not a thing you could just do, yeah, right. Um, but uh, but the reason why they send him there because they they understand that he's dangerous. Yeah, but Gandalf doesn't just let him wander around. Sure, he's going to show up and cause problems. Right, they know that. They know that. Um, but you don't you don't strike an unarmed person who has no idea that you're there. That's mm. what that's what Gandalf's saying. He's saying wisdom and have and pity. These are these are virtues that you ought to cultivate because mm-hmm. you're about to be a player on the big stage and you need yeah. to know what you're doing. Uh, this is in no way uh, Gandalf suggesting that like Gollum should be rehabilitated. Yeah. Um, so I really do think it's that. Um, now, okay, all right. Let me let me be let me say one other thing to to be fair. There is a moment in Return of the King that is very important. It's very, very important. Um, On the stairs of Kirith Ungol, where the worst part of the movies happens, where Frodo sends Sam away. Um, In the books, there's a moment where where Gollum suddenly becomes Hobbit-like. He mm-hmm. sees both Frodo and Sam who have fallen asleep. They're terrible. They're terrible at this. Yeah. They're constantly falling asleep. Yeah. Even though what you were just talking about, well, they exhausted. know that they shouldn't. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah, no. I think I think that's they're, meant to it's uh, that's probably meant to illustrate like the desperation yeah. of their circumstances. They're, they're, yeah, like right. they can't even They stay can't even set a guard when there's a murder. But, but that underscores yeah. the fact that they know that they should. Yes, <laughs> Frodo, there's yes. never a point where Frodo's like, "Nah, just leave him. It's fine." Yeah. Uh, so they they they're supposed to be setting a watch. They both end up falling asleep. And Gollum is there, and it's a really interesting moment where Tolkien essentially said, describes Gollum as like reverting back to a Hobbit-like state, mm-hmm. where like he suddenly doesn't look like Gollum anymore. He looks like just like an old Hobbit. Yeah. And then Gandalf wakes up, or not Gandalf, Sam wakes up and makes a very snide comment, mm-hmm. right? A very sort of quippy comment. Yeah. And suddenly he reverts like, and then like that moment passes, and mm-hmm. from then on. The, he's hardened. Again. Yeah, he's hardened. Like, there's no opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's the closest you ever get to a rehabilitated or reformed Gollum. Mm-hmm. And I took a Tolkien class in college, and my professor referenced a conversation that Tolkien had. I can't remember if it was with a fan or a colleague, uh, but it's, it's in one of his letters, where someone asked him about that moment. Mm-hmm. like, and, and asked him, what would have happened if Sam didn't do that? Mm-hmm. And first of all, Tolkien is very quick to defend Sam. Yeah. Right? He says, like, Sam essentially is he's like a naive he's just he's just a naive child mm-hmm. right and he's completely devoted to frodo and like people who are like that and this is goes back to what we were saying about how characters should act he's the way that defensive. they should yeah is that he he's not thinking about the grand scheme mm-hmm. right he's not and he's never supposed to be mm-hmm. right he's just a devoted servant that's yeah. so and sometimes devoted servants i, I think it's kind of like supposed to be uh, similar to peter in a way okay right like get like sort of a get behind me satan Shoot thing their mouths off a but, little bit but yeah. not there not nearly on the same level of of drama mm-hmm. right but like the idea of like sometimes you your your best intention causes you to do a thing 
that mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't have. No. But but it doesn't make him an evil person or a bad no, guy, no. right? He did uh, not force Gollum down a, ba- a path right. that he did not choose for himself. Right, right, exactly. And so Tolkien's quick to, to defend that. Um, but an interesting question is, as sort of as a follow-up in this conversation was, well, what would have happened if Sam hadn't done that? Mm-hmm. And... What Tolkien says, if I remember the, this correctly, and someone, our, one of our listening audience can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but what Tolkien essentially says is that Gollum still would have dis- been the instrument of the ring's destruction, mm-hmm. but instead of doing it selfishly, he would have done it selflessly. So there is, there is a place for Gollum's rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Like, that's on the table yeah. until Gollum takes it off the table. Yeah. Right? But it's, you know, it's not, it's, Frodo and Sam are not under any kind of disillusionment about who Gollum is or the way that yeah. he behaves, right? They're very, it's very clear. And they're really harsh. There's just him. no chance. There's mm-hmm. no chance. There's not a snowball's chance mm-hmm. that Frodo would ever choose Gollum over Sam. It would never yeah. happen. No. There's not a snowball's chance in Mount Doom. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. It is egregious beyond words. Because okay, let's talk about why. Why, T- Terry? Why is it so bad? Why is this so bad? Uh, well, you know, we were talking about arcs and how your character doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Before mm-hmm. we've got a guy whose loyalty is beyond question many times over. We've got. Gollum, whose loyalty is also beyond, also beyond question, question. <laughs> many times over. You know, in the book, I remember that there's a part where, you know, Frodo is the master of the ring, which means that, that Gollum is bound to him in some way. And um, Gollum doesn't, is not necessarily a creature of entirely free will. He hates Frodo. He wants to kill him and get the ring, but he can't really put his hand out to do it. And, and Frodo even says... If I wanted to, I could put this ring on and I could order you to jump off this cliff. Right. And you would do it. And don't forget that. Like it, it they're they're fairly serious. Yeah, with him. sure. And Sam is, you know, in the movie it's like Sam's always the one who's like I'll get you if you mess with us. You got to remember Gollum is is decrepit. He's a hobbit, so he's not on too far distant footing from these other hobbits, but he's not a dangerous combat actor right like he's dangerous because he sneaks he's dangerous because he's a knife in the dark um he's he's stronger than he looks but like if he got into a fight with aragorn aragorn would just one punch him you right. know like it would right. be nothing fighting against frodo and sam m- m- a little bit but like they're armed well sting not. is the, sting is the deciding factor when he first shows up yes right as yeah. soon as sting is drawn the fight's over yeah because like you said his it's it's all about craftiness and strangling in the dark yeah but as soon as the sword is drawn fight's over yeah happens in the hobbit too so yeah. you're right about that so he he doesn't do fights he, right. he does he does uh assassinations and theft and right. um he's like a he's a spy and a saboteur and um, I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, it's it's unfathomable to me that they would do that. I, I assume they just wanted to perpetuate some kind of drama, but um, they don't. This is a this this is a facet of the fact that Frodo is maybe besides Eowyn the most mishandled character. Yeah. in the movies. And which is and it's significantly more egregious because he's much more important to the story. Yeah, I mean, Eowyn's a B plot. I, I don't know that his. I don't know that his is as like antithetical in the movie because i think that they get him there but right. like 
because he takes up such a big chunk of the movie he the fact that he's off is a is a major problem yeah and uh they they didn't seem to really understand him and because they didn't understand him they didn't understand his loyalty to sam and they didn't you know like there's just no driving a wedge between those two yeah i i think it's an egregious error because it undermines one of the book's central themes Mm -hmm. which is camaraderie yeah right camaraderie in combat Mm -hmm. it's you know in in so many you can come at the lord of the rings from so many different angles it's such a beautifully rich text there's so much to take away from it but it, it is not a stretch at all to suggest that the entire epic is a love letter from tolkien to those comrades in arms that he lost sure right i mean it, that's not a stretch by any by any means mm-hmm. and uh so you know what is it? Because uh, Tolkien was involved in combat; he understood what it was like to lose to lose people, and um, to face great trial and to cross great distance for for a noble purpose. And um, you know, so so you could you you know to 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 drive a wedge between Frodo and Sam is to undermine the the central one of the central core tenets of the, of the entire text, yeah. which is. You know the the free peoples of Middle Earth coming together in common cause, and hell or high water, choosing to do what is right. Mm-hmm. And Sam and Frodo particularly are so compelling because they're not mighty. They're not. Mm-hmm. They have no faculty. They have. Yeah. They bring nothing to the table mm-hmm. that that makes them worthy of the quest. They're not Aragorn. They're not even Legolas or Gimli. Yeah. They're certainly not Boromir. Right. I, they, they're combat, hobbits. In combat, they're they're borderline dead weight yeah you know and but but it's their love for each other and their unwavering unflinching commitment to do what is right Mm -hmm. that that makes them so compelling and neither could have done the quest alone sure sure absolutely neither could have made it to, to go back to the movies you know one thing i think the movies do dare i say maybe better but certainly as well uh, as the books is the scene towards the end of the fellowship when Frodo yeah. chooses to go away, mm-hmm. and Sam says, "Of course you are, and I'm coming with you." Yeah, the, the, I actually think the movies maybe are, are they might take the cake there. Well, he's it he's, is that that scene is perfectly well delivered. Oh, it's perfect. Sean, Sean Austin, who I think is a very capable actor, was probably the best cast. I mean, he basically is that guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they and if you ever watch any behind the scenes stuff, it's 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 humorous how um, similar a lot of the actors are to their personalities in the movie. Yeah, where like the guys who played Merry and Pippin are kind of cut ups. Frodo, played by Elijah Wood, is is kind of a quiet, more retiring guy. Sean Austin was the guy who would go and knock on your door to make sure you were awake because filming starts in thirty minutes and you need to be out of bed. And, you know, like, and then you've got Viggo Mortensen, who's a method actor, who was walking around with his sword on his hip, like when he was going into McDonald's and stuff, you know, and it just, it, it's funny to me that, 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 yeah, that worked out that way. Absolutely. And, um, uh, but he just, and what a, like, what a perfectly accurate answer, because it's like, does Sam, did Sam make a clever remark? Of course you are, and I'm coming with you, or or is this another reflection of he's childlike? He missed like 
the comment went over his head right because right. he he was just going to do it you know and and <laughs> he right. he has to respond and yeah that's a great scene and i had not the first time i saw those movies i remember the first time i saw the fellowship mm. i had not read the fellowship yet yeah same and so i did, they do such a good job in that movie of making it look like he's going to die yeah. you know and i was like this cannot be like i was concerned because i was like i don't want this character to die because we had just seen i think baromir had died maybe but the music that was playing was like oh this is a scene where someone's gonna die and then they get him at the last minute and i was just like okay <laughs> I'm, like, Come, I'm gonna go read these books now um and so before the two towers came out i had read i had yeah. read them all three man my, so, literally my experience as well yeah i saw the first movie yeah. and was like okay i gotta read all these books before the next one comes yeah. out so yeah that was a that was a strange time in my life <laughs> so but it, i mean it, it is egregious I, the departures from the film to the book from the books to the films um some are i think tolerable some are even reasonable sure um and perhaps even you could even make an argument good but these ones we've discussed here today i just yeah these are these they'd were, befuddle yeah one of these was i think unwise one of them was wrong and one of them was was nearly damning yeah uh, well okay so let's i mean do you feel like we've covered all three yeah i think so well so let's move into final thoughts here is it damning should it be damning uh, there are there are token faithful that said the movies are bad yeah, I don't think the movies are bad. I don't think so. Um, I, I I don't think that they're overrated. I think that, in my opinion, uh, I don't know. I, I used to, I would have strongly said they're the best movie adaptations of any books, but that depends a large amount on how you define best. Yeah, I don't think they're the most accurate movie adaptations, but I do think that they might be the best movies based on books. Yeah. Um, that's probably that's probably the way I would say it, and that's a that that's a hard thing to nail down because like I'm just kind of going through my mind thinking, okay, what other ones are there that like stand out as great? And there's like, there's quite a few, sure, but these are particularly good, and I think that the movies were very very good. They were of course they made a lot of money, they were received well, um, and I think that's valid and yeah. good. And if you if you have never read the books but you have watched the movies, you're in for a treat. Yeah. There's really not a lot to complain about um, within just the movie's context. Um, where they fall short is the places where Tolkien just frankly did it better. Right. And they, if they had gone that same route, the movies, I think, would have been better. But as they stand, I think they're very good. Yeah. I enjoy them. I watch them from time to time anyway. Yeah. So. I mean, they're, I, I'm happy to agree with all those things. I think the films are are particularly good they're they're i think the the token faithful who say that they're not worth watching i think that is too harsh i think the the films do they do do a very good job of capturing the spirit yeah of the text i i gotta give them a lot of props for um, almost said crops. I, I was going to say, That's, give them crops. It's yeah. getting late. Um, Let them do it. But um, there's there's ways that they could have approached this that would have just been horrifying. Sure. I mean, if it had been made now, it would oh, be yeah. a train wreck. I mean, we know that because we've they've done that basically. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there. I remember at the time when the movies came out, there was, and I guess there probably still is. There's this strange subculture of Tolkien people who were like into shrooms and weed. And and I can remember in college 
they would always have like a poster sale. I don't know if your college did this, but the university center at UT Knoxville would have poster sales in the fall. So you could go get some decorations for your room. They'd be cheap. Gotcha. And there would always be like weird fantasy posters that you're supposed to like do shrooms and then look at and like space out. And there would always be like Gandalf smoking his pipe with like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland or something. Okay. Just like this weird, yeah, sure, weird. And I was like, okay, they could go that route. They could kind of lean into the weird, like pothead Led Zeppelin type stuff. <laughs> right, right. Or they could, they could take it very seriously. Or they could. I mean, there was there's a number of ways they could do it. And if you look at the behind the scenes, the movies are not perfect. I think that they fell short of this goal. But I, at least you can say that the creatives behind it took Tolkien's work seriously and they wanted to do a good job yeah. of making his books into movies. And and I think it's a quote that they wanted to make the movies for him. Right. Like yeah. that, like the, these, I want the movies to be a reflection of Tolkien and they're for Tolkien. Right. Uh, Peter Jackson said like, I don't want this to be my movie. I want this to be Tolkien, you know, and I'm paraphrasing cause I don't remember exactly yeah. how he said it, but he, he wanted Tolkien to overshadow right. every other creative involved. And, and I think that their devotion to their craft, you don't see this a lot anymore. There's a lot of practical effects. Mm. If you, the behind the scenes stuff is really very interesting. It's if well you worth get a the watch. extended editions of these, usually there's a disc. I think it's all three of them probably have a disc that has some kind of behind the scenes. There's a lot of stuff about the effects designs, the armorers involved, the attention to detail that they put into like, for instance, the elven architecture versus the dwarven architecture yeah. versus the human Gondorian architecture. Yeah. How do you make it look old, but at the same time in good shape? How do you make you know? I, and how do you make the how do you make it look uniform across yeah. the race? You sure. Know? So like, how does Rivendell look similar to Lothlorien? Both elvish, very different places, but you can tell it's an elf place. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, so th- just things like that and talking to architects and people who just were all, they, they involved everyone. They spent a lot of money on it, but they, they took worked. Their time. They took their time. There was a lot of craftsmen devoted to excellence involved. And, um, you know, nowadays you just have a vast office filled with guys on cubicles rendering 3d art, you know? Um, yeah. Not that that's not nothing, but, um, I don't know. I just I really value the the creative process for these movies as well. Sure. So they they need to get. There's a lot of credit that they deserve. Yeah. Even if you think that they screwed up some things with the story, I think that they need to get a lot of credit for. Because I I love the visual the the look of it. It's based on Alan Lee mostly Alan Lee's illustrations, and um, there's another artist whose name escapes me at the moment. But if you've if you've ever bought one of the nicer hardcovers of um any of Tolkien stuff usually there's an Alan Lee illustration on it the guy's right. basically made a career out of drawing Tolkien stuff he does other things too but he's definitely most famous for that and they asked him to be involved and he did, and he came in and and was and so his his illustrations became the backbone of the look of the movie and they they made him come to life yeah, they absolutely. really did and and not much of it looks bad there's a few places where it looks a little janky now just because of they use CGI and if you look at the, if you watch the um, extended editions, some of the uh, places where the movie's extended um, was not the, not totally polished as, as much. Right. So there's a few of those places where you're like, eh, okay. Um, 
but uh, not not a big deal. Sure. Do you think the extended editions are worth the extra time investment? I I cannot watch the theatrical cuts okay. <laughs> anymore. I'm yeah. I'm a I'm a diehard. If you're gonna watch them, you go extended. Yeah. It's well worth the time. I, I'm also not the kind of person that doesn't enjoy. If the movie's good, I'll watch a four hour movie. Sure. Like I Fellowship's not <clears throat> so bad. The Fellowship's like two and a little more. Two hours. Yeah, minutes. that's right. There's only there was only like twenty or thirty minutes extra on that one. Right. The Return of the King's almost <laughs> it's like, like an hour yeah, or something. It's massive. It's huge. Um, but I, I I I think they're well worth the time. I mean, you're talking to a guy who used to marathon them in one day. I mean, oh, I, I tried that one time and I couldn't do it. I used to be my. I got like thirty minutes into two towers and was like, I've got to go do something else. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm I watch them with my students. I don't really watch a lot of films with my students, but that, those are ones I watch. Yeah, and we have to watch the theatrical cuts, of course, because yeah, yeah, time time constraint. And it's really it's tough. It's tough for me to do that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm like, oh, there's so much you're missing. Uh, there's supposed to be another scene right there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I do think I do think they're good. I, I I'm happy to wrap this up by saying, uh, full agree. I think the movies are well deserving of much of the accolades they've received. Um, they're well worth your time. If you have seen the movies, go read the books. They are better. Um, they are f- you know fuller and richer, and and you you will not be disappointed uh, with what Tolkien does there. I'm going to say something about reading the books of these. So I've seen the movies a bunch of times and you got to be careful when you, when you read a book and then you see a movie, unless the, unless they do a really good job. And I'll give the example of Harry Potter here. Harry Potter looks just like he's supposed to on the, on the movie side. He looks exactly like he's described. And funnily enough, um, the guy that plays Severus Snape is named Alan Rickman. And who's a, a world class actor? I think he's passed away now, he is, but yeah. um, he's a bad guy in Die Hard. He's he's in a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, he, when she was writing the books, she visualized Alan Rickman in that role. And I always thought that was kind of a, a fun story because they they went and told him that, and he's like, "Oh well, you know, I'll sign up <laughs> um, and do it." And then, you know, obviously, I'll match the description. You know, right. just give me a wig, or I'll grow my hair out, or whatever they did with him. But, um, but that's that's one of what I would, I would say that the characters look like they're supposed to. If I read Harry Potter, I see the actors, yeah, and I see the sets, and I see the I visualize the way the movie was done. When I read Lord of the Rings, the the book pushes the movie out of my brain, and I don't see it the same as the movie presents it. And I've never that's the only book that I can think of where the book itself overpowers the visual memory of the film version. Yeah. Um, and I, and that's coming from somebody who, who really likes the visuals of the film. Sure. Um, but I don't see Elijah Wood as Frodo. I don't, you know, there's just, I don't, the big one for me is the golden hall. The golden hall looks different in my mind than it does in the movie. And, um, uh, you know, I can't really explain that except to say that, you know, maybe Tolkien has a little bit of fairy magic himself. I don't know. <laughs> I'm but, happy to believe it. But yeah, yeah that's that's a that's a good. That's a good so point. we normally end with with do you recommend? And I think that we can at this point. You're probably pretty clear. We recommend the books wholeheartedly. These are your desert island books. Yes, you know, outside absolutely. of outside of the holy scriptures, these are the ones that you probably would say I'm I'm going to take these with me. Yeah, and I would say you know we mentioned Heart of Darkness earlier as my favorite. I would rather have if I could only have one set of books. It would be these three. I would sure. rather have these than Heart of Darkness. And I, I don't. Maybe that that may, maybe that makes them my favorite book. But um, there's a depth, yeah, that most books just can't attain to. 
it's re-readable yeah. in a way that most books are not. I read it once a year, yeah. minimum. And every time I read it, there's just new, more, greater, longer, fuller, richer. I mean, it's just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know what to... I don't know what to uh, I, there's nothing else that I can think of, fiction-wise, that um, that is there. Um, Tolkien's or uh, Lewis's space trilogy is probably maybe my next, yeah, closest. It's a good pick, and it's it's not that close. I have I've only read the space trilogy twice, and I've read these I don't know maybe three or four times. I can't remember now. Sure, sure. Um, so we recommend the books we do we recommend the movies yes um extended edition if you can get it yes. um so let's talk about a little further reading this will be our last thing um we we threw out beowulf which we've talked about well we haven't done a, an episode on beowulf right. but we have mentioned beowulf yeah previously. Uh, so it's Tolkien's influences beowulf um song of roland of which we talked about today yep. there's some there's some there circle in the green knight mm-hmm. would be a good one um the ring um the poetic edda um, the saga yeah. of the Volsungus. Yeah. Um, and you'll see that there's things borrowed. Like, yes. for example, um, uh, you see this is more from The Hobbit, but the dwarves' names right. appear in the prose Edda, yes. I think. Or maybe this, maybe it's the Volsungs. I can't remember now. Uh, it's Actually, I think it's the saga of the Volsungus. Okay. So, uh, the, and they're dwarves, right? Like, the, right. the Norse myths had dwarves as well. Um, and uh, it's just, it's fun. There's a lot. And then, you know, the idea of the magic ring, the idea of... The sword um, that's broken. Yeah, um, there's a lot of tropes that the, he the borrows. thief who steals the goblet. I mean, yes, yes, all. that's. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's time for us to wrap this one up. Let's do it. Um, we don't have any uh, any more segments. We're out of segments, so yeah, I think we're done. Um, we don't know what we're doing next, but uh, stay tuned. We'll do something, and we'll hopefully not take six months to do it. But we appreciate <laughs> you hanging in there. You've waited six months. Uh, which probably seems like a fairly short time when compared with the length of this podcast episode. <laughs> but um, we thank you for sticking with us, and we hope that you found the discussion interesting and enlightening. And uh, we have enjoyed, we've certainly enjoyed putting it on, on we tape, we as, as, they, as they say. Any parting comments? Any parting shots? No, man, just enjoy talking. He's the best. Yeah. It will enrich your life. So thanks again. If you need to get with us, if you need to uh, reach out to us, you can actually send us an email at scriptvmanuscript at gmail.com, which is an email we check approximately every six months. <laughs> <laughs> so if we don't get to you, we'll, we'll sorry. Um, and uh, let's see, if you're, in, if you're in the Cookville, Tennessee area and you're looking for something to do, uh, you should stop by the Table Board Game Lounge. And they've got... All kinds of stuff you can do. They've got board game lounges. They've recently started up a D and D kind of how-to, like yeah. a one-on-one yeah. um, kind of thing. So if you're if you're new to tabletop, pencil and paper D and D, which a lot of people are, there's a lot of interest in that now. Yeah. That's a good thing to do. Take advantage of. Um, if you need any books, you need to come to Walls of Books or visit your Walls of Books wherever you are. If you don't have one, find a locally owned bookstore and patronize them. Um, check with them if they don't have the book you want they can almost certainly order it in for you and uh and support your local folks um and, and get in a conversation with them about the books that they love yeah. see about see if they like tolkien you know there's a there's a about an 85 percent chance that somebody working in a bookstore is going to be at least uh, amenable to talking about tolkien so um what else anything else check out our sister podcast pop culture quorum deo yes 
Um, uh, any other ones you want to yeah, I can't think of any other plugs at the moment. So I guess that's it. That wraps it up. That wraps it up. Well, thank you, folks. Thank you for tuning into Script V Manuscript. I am Terry here with co-host Joe. And uh, we will be back again someday to discuss another book interminably long. <laughs> so see you then. See you then. <laughs>